Hello everyone and welcome to episode 158 of Squared Circle Gazette Radio. I am Liam O'Rourke, back here at the Oaken Table for the third and final part of our look at the year 1990 in the World Wrestling Federation, a little mini-series that we've been doing here for the past couple of weeks. It's been a great deal of fun. And uh, for those of you who may be coming in cold here, squaredcirclegazette.com is the place to go if you missed the first two parts. Check out the archives, check out those previous two shows. Uh, They've gotten a great response so far. We really appreciate the positive feedback. If you like this show, today let us know what you think and we may end up doing a similar series of this kind uh, with that said because we've got a lot to discuss i'm going to throw now over to in cleveland ohio by way of the uh, top rope nation podcast my co-host for this mini series mr kyle ross kyle thank you very much for joining us and how you do my man i hope that you're as ready for this as i am yeah man we were talking off air it's bizarre because i don't think a lot of people talk about the latter third of 1990. And that sort of just makes me more excited for you and I to do it. Because I think this is a very unexplored couple months in the history of the World Wrestling Federation. Yet very important. Absolutely very important. Considering that the, the thesis of this entire series was a broader look at 1990. More in-depth look at this year. What is this year in reality in the timeline in the grand scheme of things? Is it just that throwaway year that a lot of people think that it is? Or... Is it kind of the precursor of, of, of a lot of the things that came uh, in terms of the downturn of the WWF in the early 90s? Uh, in part one, obviously, we broached from the start of the year through to WrestleMania 6. Part two last week, we talked about WrestleMania through to SummerSlam. Today, we're going to talk first about the main event scene at the end of the year. We're going to move on to some of the moves that Vincent Mann made in the bodybuilding world at the end of 1990. Take a look elsewhere on the card to see kind of what was going on. Evaluate some of the guys that came in and out of the company during this time frame as well. And wrap it up by talking about the effect this whole year had, tying it back to that overall thesis. However, before we get into the guts of today, there are a couple of corrections, Kyle. A couple of small corrections. A bit of journalistic responsibility here that uh, you wanted to get to. Yes, so back in part one, I believe it was, we had a discussion about some issues WWE had getting the gate money out of Canada and how that affected them not wanting to run another pay-per-view in Canada for some time. And in the notes it said, well, they didn't run there for another six years. And so I think you and I both were like, okay, six years, and we just both remembered international incident and said that, right? Well, as we know... WWE is bringing in your house back for the NXT brand. And so I started doing some research on NXT for uh, some talk on the Top Rope Nation podcast. And lo and behold, I was reminded that international incident was not the first time they returned to Canada post WrestleMania 6. It was actually in your house for, in October of 1995, uh, a pay-per-view subtitled Great White North uh, in his most famous for Vince McMahon throwing his headset down at the end of the show and cursing the Diesel Davy Boy Smith title match. <laughs> However, even though uh, it was incorrect, my joke about how it still did a terrible buy rate does still stand. That is true. And if there was ever a pay-per-view that one would forget from the 1990s, In Your House 4 might be it, was never even released uh, in its full form commercially. I don't blame him. By Coliseum Home Video. Do you remember they jammed in your house four and five into one Coliseum video tape? Did and it was really? just like, the, yeah, it was the best of. It was not both full shows. They kind of took half of both of them, and it was called like Winter Combat or something like that. Oh, wow. I know over here that five got like a very, very limited release, and I don't think I ever saw five in the shops, but four I've never seen a tape of. 
Yeah, well, I mean, and again, that was also a show famous for uh, Shawn Michaels not jobbing to uh, Dean Douglas. In a horrible jacket, by the way. Shawn Michaels, that show. I, oh, that jacket was really bad. I'm glad <laughs> somebody said that. <laughs> I'm glad that I'm not the only one who thought that. It was a very bad jacket. But enough about In Your House for Great White North. That's why not. That's not why anyone's tuning in today. Uh, one more clarification I wanted to get to from uh, the last episode that we did part two we talked about wwe moving into titan towers uh or specifically buying uh the building that would become titan towers in april of 1990 they did not officially move in to may 13th 1991 according to history of wwe.com i kind of alluded to eh, the distractions with moving into a new building well they actually technically did not move into the new building for another year uh after purchasing it Indeed. Uh, there's also a little additional note we wanted to add about Stan Hansen, who obviously I'd mentioned last week is a potential kind of a cheating way of trying to get a new challenge for Hogan or Warrior. Stan Hansen not only did the uh, the, 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 the fill-in, I suppose, for the, uh, the New Japan, All Japan, WWF crossover show in April, also had a cameo in No Holds Barred. So yeah, yet another connection. But uh, I don't think they could have made the money right regardless for Stan to come in. So no. once again... A technical detail, but we're still right in the big picture. Now, there was something I forgot entirely to bring up in part two, and I do want to get to this right now before we get into part three proper of the show. Are you ready for this, Liam? I've shared this to you, and I think this is a hoot and a half, personally. <laughs> Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Okay. July 28th, 1990 issue of TV Guide. I only came across this because I was looking for the TV Guide that we talked about in part one with Hulk Hogan being named as one of the 20 top stars. TV stars of the 1980s. Well, this one came up too, and it was obviously uh, released much later in the year, and it's called Wrestling is Real Life Drama. Nice picture of Rick Rude there. And I just want to read an excerpt of this because I was in tears reading this. <laughs> so the, the thesis of this article is, wrestling is real life drama. The battle between good and evil takes on many forms. And in the WWF today, it's a sexual war. I'm okay. Floored. I was floored at that line. Okay. It gets so good. <laughs> I'm reading this verbatim now. Since the warming of the Cold War and the retirement of Ronald Reagan, political figures have become less important in the WWF, nor are color and race as important to wrestling. Many crowd pleasers actively court the grotesque, Think of the Bushwhackers or the obese Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> Many heels actually use their muscularity and good looks to, quote-unquote, draw heat. Ooh. And Hulk Hogan, quote-unquote, a good guy, often cheats. And some favorites like Demolition have made a career out of cheating. By the way, nice that TV guy noticed Hulk Hogan was always a dick. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I continue. Just a little bit more. Please entertain me here. Today, then, the battle between good and evil isn't played out along racial, political, or ethical lines. It's a sexual war. Wrestling has reverted to a celebration of the essential and reassuring divisions of gender and sexual behavior. This shouldn't be surprising. Wrestling has always had a sexual element. It is, after all, a sport in which two half-naked men try to get on top of each other. Now that we've run off anyone from this podcast, let me just finish this up, last little bit up. The aggressive sexuality has been elaborated on by various characters in the WWF. 
Jake the Snake Roberts drapes a very phallic snake over the bodies of his victims. Hacksaw Jim Duggan carries a length of a two-by-four into the ring. The board, elemental, primitive, viral, is a, is a symbol of his manliness. Wonder what they fit... I wonder what they think of Triple H's sledgehammer. I'd love to see a follow-up by TV Guide. And anyway, this thing keeps going on a little bit more. But one of my favorite things is right under this photo of Sherry. They have this. Ravishing Rick Rude, facing page, puts woman puts women above his male friends. The Ultimate Warrior flies above Honky Tonk Man. Sensational Sherry above plays the whore. Is that direct yeah. language? Yeah, their words, not mine, folks. So anyway, that is the July 28th, 1990 TV guide. You can actually find this online uh, via eBay. Maybe I'll even tweet this out uh, after we're done recording so people can look at this for themselves. But uh, yeah, somebody sold this or was selling it. Uh, I don't know. I found it and I laughed pretty hard. This is an extraordinary piece of journalism. Almost nine years ahead of the, uh, ahead of the curve here. Yeah, yeah, what? <laughs> Jim Duggan's 2 by 4 who knew? <laughs> a very phallic snake, is there any other kind? Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know, but it, it, it's just funny that, like, you know, Triple H's sledgehammer, everyone does joke about it the way he, like, <laughs> holds it and just stares at the end, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, combined with a Muslim fitness in the, in the gym in Titan Towers, I think that we've kind of, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah. Kind of... TV guy knew what it was talking about. Who knew? Yeah, well before the Attitude Era. I I had no idea that that. And I tell you what, boy, were they uh, boy were they timely with their comments on how wrestling was not about um, ethnic or racial lines. And that is why you are the lead man on this podcast to bring it all back home, baby. Let's go post <laughs> SummerSlam 1990. All right, we're here. So after SummerSlam, and we did talk at the uh, the end of the last podcast about the success SummerSlam had on the night on pay per view. But we did stress the point that obviously in the aftermath, things were not looking pretty at the houses, which is the problem all throughout the summer. We do have notes, obviously, from the Wrestling Observer newsletter. So a tip of the cap to uh, Uncle Dave uh, for some of the stuff we're going to read today. And we're going to open with one of his quotes here. Uh, Hogan was never an automatic sellout and he isn't now, says Meltzer. Warrior is the only other one that makes a difference, but not as much of a difference as expected. Uh, things got so bad with the, uh, the houses in the month of September that they decided to kill off the sea show uh, house show tour completely. They eliminated the entire thing. More localized promos are being done to try and drum up market-specific interest in the house shows uh, for the A and B tours, and Piper has also been brought back to wrestle on the house shows to try and bump those numbers up. Maybe a dumb question here, Liam. Feel free to mock me if it is a dumb question. But is there any evidence that localizing these promos actually has a positive effect on business i was thinking about this because i you know this may be like a holdover from a different time from from the, the fallout of the territorial days where they would do these you know again you know, the mid-south they, they'd focus promos on tulsa on oklahoma city the, the more market specific ones at this time i don't see how this works the only thing that i could think of was at the nwa around this time did do a market-specific television show, and I want to say it was in Atlanta. I might have that wrong. Um, and the ratings did grow significantly for the TV show that was that was specific and customized for that market. At this time, the final quarter of 1990, the WWF experimented with a specific customized show for New York. 
Um, and I think that that was kind of one of those holdovers where they thought that, well, maybe, you know, there's still some kind of uh, signs that maybe this will, will do some good since since it had worked in the NWA. But I personally, I don't see at this point with the landscape being what it was as a national promotion, how this really helps. Now, the very first WWF house show I went to was January of 88, Savage and Honky main evented. Okay. And that was during the period where, you know, three times during the hour teleclass telecast of syndicated television whether it was superstars or challenge they'd throw it to gene okerland or whoever and he'd talk about coming to the richfield coliseum uh and then they'd go over the card they didn't i don't think they were doing that as much anymore in this era um and obviously by doing that in you know pre you know mentioning specifically the richfield coliseum i knew about the show i was able to ask my uncle to take me to it but on the flip side, you know, I went to a sold-out WWF house show in 1998, the height of the Attitude Era. I don't remember any localized promos for that. So I always kind of think, look, I, I get why you'd want to do localized promos, but it seems to only be an issue that comes up when business is down. And I, I think you'd agree, Liam. The reality is houses are more dependent on quality of the programs and how hot the overall product is. Yeah, 100% agreed on that. I th I share the same kind of uh, sentiment as you on my own personal experience of when I would first go. It was not because they focused the promotion on Birmingham. It's because I knew that they were coming to town. I was available. You know, I was. I was. It was in uh, late nine ninety six. It was when Shawn Michaels was champion. Uh, he promptly one week before lost the belt to Sid. <laughs> so I really got. <laughs> I really got dicked on the main event. But uh, there you go. I I guess you know this also is a thing now with technology changing and the way you can reach your audience, there's less and less of reasons for localized problems because people just know it's easier to find out. Um, I just don't know if you're looking at this time period of WWF, if they're like, hey, we're coming to insert your town here, the houses would have necessarily picked up demonstrably. Yeah, They had well, bigger I issues. They, yes, they had far bigger issues that, that meant a lot more for... Because, again, I don't think they were doing this the year before, and that was the reason why things weren't going so well at this point. Um, and they were not going so well at this point. In fact, in October, after a show in San Francisco, which we talked about, I believe, in part two, as a traditionally strong market for the WWF, uh, the Warrior, who had, had had some problems elsewhere, would, yeah, he'd drawn a couple of 12,000-seat buildings... Uh, things were usually pretty good in San Francisco. In October, they did a show that did 4,500 people, the second smallest crowd that Hulk Hogan had ever worked in in the city since 1984. The main event was himself and Tugboat versus Earthquake and Dino Bravo. So by October, things really start to level off. And uh, Vince McMahon went on the road with Hogan over the weekend trying to figure out how to get Hogan's big drawing power back. Such was the, uh, the, the stress with the situation. I just would love to be a fly on the wall of that, like Vince and Hulk banging their heads against the table. How do we bring our this drawing power back? But <laughs> uh, yeah, more evidence that the big number Hogan delivered at SummerSlam was a one-time thing, in my opinion, when I read this. And I was also honestly shocked, uh, one that I'm almost 40 years old, my voice cracks, but I was also honestly shocked that Hogan continued working with Tugboat through the fall. Yeah, because Tugboat, this is the thing. I know that Pritchard says that there was nothing to the Tugboat punishment story, but there really makes no, this whole, and, and the fact they they kind of kept with him at this point, I guess lends some credence to that. But the Tugboat situation just kind of thoroughly confuses me because 
if it wasn't a punishment, why would we just switch him out for Boss Man? But if it was a punishment, why would we just switch him back? It makes no, you know, it makes no sense either way. Yeah, you're right. If they realized, hey, this guy's just not working, and we need to get rid of him, well, why did you almost immediately go back to him? You know, I, I was watching a lot of the same TV that you were, the month-by-month yeah. month TV. And the first thing, I think, on the September 90 comp I watched was a tugboat vignette talking about coming back for Earthquake and Bravo. Yeah, well, I and think so he's on the boat. Is that the one? Yeah, yeah. It was So it's very odd that he was kind of out of the picture for two to three weeks. Uh, I wonder if the reaction tugboat got at Survivor Series, something we previously mentioned in part two, put an end once and for all to tugboat's attachment to Hogan. Because after that, he was kind of nowhere to be seen. Yeah, it was kind of an afterthought. That I think they did do a Brother Love show where they interviewed Hogan near the end of the year about what if he faces Tugboat in the Rumble, and that's about the only reference there is from that point forward to, to the Hogan-Tugboat alliance. Yeah, and the reaction Tugboat gets, if you missed it in part two or forgot, is he gets booed soundly. <laughs> and rightly so. Imagine a get-up like that, people cheering him, even in 1990. We will talk more in depth about the individual elements later on in the show, but we are going to talk now about Survivor Series, which the company limped into from a television perspective. 13,000 paid uh, in the building, 2,000 fans shy of a sellout, a 3.0 buy rate just below the year before. A couple of big things obviously happened on this show, uh, which we'll talk about uh, in little bits and pieces here. The Undertaker obviously debuts, as does the gobbledygooker. Uh, Meltzer in The Observer says they really want to push Slaughter hard, as obviously the top three heels at WrestleMania will be Undertaker, Slaughter, and Piper, if he turns as expected. Uh, both Hogan and Warrior, as you mentioned on, uh, on part two, stand the test of time, the uh, grand finale match of survival. Uh, they are the two men who survive at the very end, side by side, as the camera gets an ultra low angle that probably gave that TV guide writer uh, something to, to write about. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that was quite the uh, camera shot, wasn't it? So, Survivor Series 90, buy rate slightly down. I do believe, though, if I got my facts right, the number of actual buys was slightly up. Because if we remember the pay-per-view universe expanding pretty rapidly during this time period. Yes. So while the buy rate could be down, but the number of buys could be up. So, um, again, kind of like SummerSlam. All right, maybe this TV's nothing to write home about, but you're not sounding the alarm if you're WWE or WWE. You know, I'm going to be so inconsistent, I think, throughout this podcast. <laughs> I already have been, Lord knows, first two parts, whether to call them WWF, WWE, but the promotion, you know, I don't think is sounding any kind of alarms that we're in major trouble when you look at the Survivor Series and SummerSlam numbers compared to the previous year, uh, even though buy rates are down in both cases. But it's nothing like the year-to-year drop-off between WrestleManias 5 and 6. No, not at all. Uh, obviously, like we said, we've been talking about the live events uh, up to this point, which obviously are a very big deal to the company at this time. Pay-per-view kind of considered a cash cow uh, that they were hoping to rely on for the future. And it should be mentioned, as you mentioned there, the TV between SummerSlam and Survivor Series, I found to be a harder watch than before SummerSlam, which was really striking because obviously the, the rap the summer of 1990 has, and I think we kind of talked about it, that it deserves the rap that it's got, is that it was a very dull period of time, the same thing, kind of monotonous, kind of dull. But at least in some ways you had the embers of things like the Hogan return that were executed very well to at least kind of spice things up moderately, even if the rest of the card was boring. But after SummerSlam, it just feels like it's complete holding pattern stuff. 
Yeah, and by the way, you offered a very nice kind of well but there when you talked about the houses being down despite the pay-per-views being relatively stable, and that's a, a very good point. So alarms were probably going off in that regard, uh, despite the fact the pay-per-views were holding steady. So I agree with you on the lack of heated issues heading into Survivor Series. All there was on the TV was just a ton of rather generic team promos. Yeah, where they were so- just talking about surviving, and it, it, it just it wasn't clicking, and it was repetitive. The only one that stood out as being memorable was memorable for the wrong reasons when you had an, <laughs> when you when you had Pat Tanaka kind of breaking kayfabe and speaking English, uh, forgetting who was on the other team. <laughs> well, in fairness, and I, I was going to say he spoke perfect English, but he did blow his opponent's name, so I guess maybe not perfect English. <laughs> yeah. He remembered Tito. He remembered the Bushwhackers. Couldn't remember the team captain. I don't blame him. As yeah, I said last week, who the who the fuck gives a shit about the Bolsheviks? Yes, yes. And Nikolai Volkov was the opposing captain, the captain of the Alliance, mm. opposing mercenaries. Yes. Um, yeah, that was funny. I, Of course you would remember the Bushwhackers, because who could forget the Bushwhackers' incredible promo on syndicated television around this time, where they were eating rice, hyping their match with the Orient Express. <laughs> That's... It, not quite as bad as Club Kamikaze, but, uh, you know, by 1990 standards, come on. Not, uh, not the finest. Yeah. Uh, last point here as far as the lack of heated issues. And I know this had to stand out to us, to you like a sore thumb. Ultimate Warrior was still being shoehorned into this LOD demolition thing. And he was the one guy in his Survivor Series match that didn't have a personal issue at all. No, still WF champion, by the way, for those listening. Yes, WWF champion. It was him, Kerry, who was technically the Intercontinental champion. He had lost it, but that had not aired on TV yet. And the LOD against Mr. Perfect and the three-man version of Demolition. So Kerry and Perfect were feuding over the IC title, obviously. And he went LOD and Demolition. And oh, by the way, we're just going to add the world champion into this mix. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not that this is really going to give many credit, but Warrior, obviously, they'd been doing the house shows, and he'd they did the six-man tag on the uh, horrific Satellite's main event we'll be talking about a little bit later on in October that preceded this. Uh, but again, no personal issue. There was never an angle they shot, really, with the Warrior to involve him in the demolition match that I remember. Not one that I could find when, we were, when I was doing the rewatch. So it really was kind of doubly astounding that Warrior is, at this point, on this bigger show, still not involved in anything really pertinent to the bigger picture. Yeah, I mean, he was feuding with Savage, and we'll talk yeah. about that. But it was very odd that Randy Savage wasn't even on this show. So you mentioned the grand finale match of Survival. My question to you is, do you feel WWF was aware of the lack of heated issues heading into this card, and that's why the grand finale was created? I think so. I think that they felt that they had to give something that kind of... Because, again, they were very vague about what, what that match was going to be on television. They just kind of said all the survivors will be in at the end in one big match. They never really kind of made it explicitly... Because what are they going to say? The faces and the heels are going to resonate? They never said anything like that. So it was like... I got the feeling that they were kind of banking on the vagaries of, well, what if, you know, if the top guys don't get in there at the end, then maybe we're going to see something major and important. Yeah, and this is kind of an issue with survivor series the previous year it's a very pointless show almost Mm -hmm. for 1980s wwf standards i mean say what you will about the wrestling on those shows 
the show's always had a point, at least in the main event picture, right? Yeah. 1989 was kind of a show. It's like, well, you look at who survived. We're going to protect these people and just get them through this pay-per-view. But there weren't a ton of personal issues heading into that one either. So I think, you know, we've always heard about Vince and his view of Survivor Series. It almost went away in 2009. I think by year four, they were looking at it and like, okay, how can we dangle some carrot in front of our audience to get them to care about this show? You mentioned how vague they were with what the grand finale match would be. Well, Bruce Pritchard on his kayfabe commentary said he was under the impression initially that they were going to have a battle royal with the survivors. But instead, they switched it to faces versus heels. Yeah, which again, I guess, kind of makes you wonder about when the discussions happened in the boardroom, what they were thinking the end game of this was. If the end game is to put one guy over, the Battle Royal works best. If that's not what you want to do, then you don't go with that, which is not what they did. And given who won the grand finale match, once it was just a face team versus a heel team, Hogan and Warrior, as you said, I think it boiled down to, it's like, well, we want to protect those two. And so we can't do a Battle Royal, because if we do a Battle Royal with Hogan and Warrior, well, then people are going to want to see that again possibly and we don't want to tease that and they were very careful in the old days not to tease something on television they weren't going to go to in the modern time all they yeah they tease stuff all the time that they don't wind up following up on but in the 80s give them credit if they didn't want to tease at their audience they didn't dangle the carrot no, that was kind of a hallmark of, of the way they did things. You never tease a match, you're never going to deliver. And uh, I, I, I miss those days, frankly. Yeah, there's an argument that it's a better way to do it. So had it been a battle royal, it would have been a great way to tease a potential Warrior Hogan rematch for WrestleMania 7, right? Sure you, could have done, you could have done the exact same thing you did at Rumble 90, where those two clear the ring, they turn around, and then, you know... Remember that promo Hogan cut where he was going to go through Earthquake and he was going to leave Jack Tunney with no alternative but to make him the number one contender? That's right. Well, teased it. Yeah, who knows how you do that Warrior Hogan deal? If if a battle royal came down to them, I don't know. That's certainly a rabbit hole we could go very deep down. But uh, it, it certainly, if that was your main event for WrestleMania 7 the Battle Royal would have been the way to go, and you can tease it. Um, the way they did it with Hogan and Warrior both surviving, I think it just made it clear the current champion was not superior to the former champion. Uh, although, in fairness, at this point, they certainly knew they were going back to Hogan at Mania. It certainly feels that way in some respects. Now, also on the show, we did mention a name that would be uh, very important for the next oh, 30 so years and counting, The Undertaker. Obviously, debuts on this show. Uh, and in the aftermath, referred to as Kane the Undertaker for a little bit on the Cindy's. Uh, and that was the name that he'd used on the matches they take before Survivor Series that went out afterwards, uh, which quickly gets scrubbed off. Just the Undertaker from that point forward. Yeah, naming struggles aside, uh, this character clearly worked from the get-go. That's very easy to say now. You mentioned the TV. Kind of hard to get through, uneventful for this time period. Would you say the debut of The Undertaker was the best thing? Uh, I think quite comfortably. Okay. It is amazing 
that the most successful gimmick in company history debuted on the same show as the gobbledygooker, which may have been the <laughs> most unsuccessful gimmick in company history. They were bad. And it's funny in the observers, they like, they're, you know, they're talk again, this, this build up what it's going to be and how, well, you know, it's not so bad because sports, they have company mascots and stuff like that as well. So, you know, yeah, you know, they kind of temper your expectations a little bit. This did not get over, but it's funny because Roddy Piper insists that it did on the show. Yeah, I just <laughs> I just do not know what they were thinking. So for those of you who may not have been around and don't know what we're talking about with this gobbledygooker, although it is amazing 30 years later, both Undertaker and gobbledygooker were mentioned on a WWF television show. Yeah. The tribute to Triple H. I, <laughs> man, that's, that's pretty crazy. But there was this egg that was appearing on the weekend television shows, and they were telling us it was going to hatch at Survivor Series. And they interviewed kids who all thought it would be like some animal or something like that. I think newsletter readers were hoping it would be some sort of new wrestler. And what it was is basically Hector Guerrero in the San Diego chicken outfit. Yeah, who knew that Vince's uh, wavelength was the same as the six-year-old's? Yeah, I I just, yeah. I I remember people thinking it would be King Kong Bundy. Wasn't that like an urban legend? Well, he's just going to stick his arms and legs out. (laughs) Yeah. My God, King Kong Bundy is just, he's back in the WWE and he hatched from an egg. I guess that would be pretty terrible. But um, (laughs) yeah, the gobbledygooker, he did make a couple appearances on the weekend TV shows doing interviews with Coco Beware and the Bushwhackers. But yeah, this was shuffled off to the uh, garbage can rather quickly. Yeah, did not work out so well. But the Undertaker Undertaker did. Yes. Okay. Meltzer mentioned in the note you read that he meaning undertaker was going to be one of the key heels at wrestlemania that wasn't really the case at wrestlemania as you know he squashed jimmy snooker in kind of a nothing match do you think taker should have been pushed to the top of the card sooner and put in that key position for wrestlemania 7 honestly no because I liked how they took their time with him and made him a key player after WrestleMania. They, it felt like that was going to be when... I mean, if they've made their mind up to go where they go, and, and obviously we were going we to argue later on that they shouldn't have, but if you're going to go in that direction, I don't see there being any need to rush Taker to that point. Um, I like the slow burn with him for the first few months. Yeah, it was kind of like Earthquake the year before. Yeah, where yeah. You- you introduce a heel in the fall, you build him up, and he's your top heel after WrestleMania. Yeah. Folks, they used to do this all the time, believe it or not. And a tip of the cap, I like it a lot better. You know, now, in 2020, we get Seth Rollins, who's been all over the television for months and months and months, loses his big match at WrestleMania, and then he's the first contender uh, for his brand's title. Mm, I don't yes. like that at all. So, <laughs> I, 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 believe it or not, you know, all due respect to the uh, new father-to-be, Seth Rollins, uh, I prefer The Undertaker and Earthquake. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think that the the way that they played, and it gets us burying Snooker too, which was just very satisfying. Uh, hit the brakes, and, and and there we go. Taker's the guy. That, and, and because you, if you rush in the first couple of months, you don't have that kind of that familiarity, that equity with the character. And besides, in the meantime, he got Paul Bearer, which I think was a, a worthwhile addition as well to the act. Yes, long term, there is no doubt that Paul Bearer was a better manager than Bruce Pritchard as brother love. And the other question is, if you rush Taker to the top, well, what do you do with him when he inevitably loses to, like, a Hogan 
at WrestleMania or a warrior or somebody, or may, I mean, I don't know, maybe he wins a, a key. I don't know who that number three baby face that he could have worked with at WrestleMania would have been, but um, yeah, the way they did it, I, I agree was the way to do it. Um, there is a name that you've mentioned twice that I want to ask you about. If there's any more notes from Meltzer. Yes. Ronnie Piper. You said, quote unquote, turn heel as expected. I want to know more about that. Yeah, so this came from, there was, there was a, just a, a random note there thrown out there in the Viewers of the Survivor Series that we just mentioned, and then there was a follow-up in the November 19th uh, edition of The Observer, where Meltzer says, it's been reported just about everywhere that Roddy Piper will be turning heel and facing the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania. Uh, this much I know, he says. The Fox special will be late February, which is awfully late to shoot a big angle since WrestleMania is just four weeks later. Uh, Piper will be working as a babyface against Mr. Perfect in January and February, but everyone expects to turn heel even though to be done effectively the turn should be no later than mid-january of course in the end this does not happen funnily enough though he was on my shortlist for uh, for part two when we were talking about ideas for the warrior after wrestlemania uh i did have a kind of a, 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 a an idea for a warrior piper feud with piper turning heel um kind of in the you can kind of see the embers you know it's a bit similar to the year before in the nwa with a, with with a funk and flair with the kind of the, the established legend wanting a, a shot at the belt, gets turned down, <laughs> goes heel. But again, he wasn't in the good books at the time, so I kind of scrapped that one off as, as, as unrealistic. Here, Piper was back, he was on commentary, and clearly they were looking for help from Piper on the house shows, and I can see if they gave this consideration why they would put thought to it. Because again, the numbers are going down, and, and what happens when things go down traditionally with Vince or with anyone, really? They go back to what's worked. And Piper's a heel has worked. Logistically, I'm not sure how this would have worked, though. Meltzer talks about the main event uh, in February being a pretty late time to start a Warrior-Piper feud. So Warrior's champion, we know, he loses the title at the Royal Rumble to Sergeant Slaughter. And that was because of interference from Randy Savage. Would you have had... Piper interfere instead? I know there was some information in that quote you read that would seem to say no, that like Piper was going to work as a baby face through February. I just don't know how you do that feud and make it a really big deal for WrestleMania if it's not Piper costing the Warrior the title. And that would kind of be an interesting deal. You know, why would he have done that? Savage had the storyline reason of, well, the Warrior wasn't given the title shot. I don't know how you shoehorn Piper into that deal. No, once you started with the Savage story, then you kind of have to see that through. And I think yes. that that's kind of my, my perspective on that is, if you were going to do this, then you need to kind of start the Piper thing around Survivor Series. Maybe, yeah, I would agree I would, with that. I, I would, yeah, Survivor Series at the latest, maybe you could have done the kind of the, the hints and the teases. On, yeah, because he's on commentary. He could, have plug, he could have, you know, done the salt stuff before then. And then as we kind of move towards the Rumble, that's where the big angle happens. Then they get a couple of months with Piper's promos where you can finally pay it off. But by this, I mean, you're not getting a, 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 a deep, well-executed, time-to-breathe, makes-logistical-sense Piper warrior feud in a month. No. And you're right. You With Piper at TV all the time doing commentary, you could have shot something, obviously. I mean, yeah. Piper was there every week. So that was your thing. Now... You alluded to this, what Piper actually did upon his return to the house shows. He was involved in the 
Tornado Perfect program, first as a guest referee, and then challenged Mr. Perfect for the IC title once Perfect got the IC title back. Uh, before that, he started winning these bunkhouse battle royals, and I assume that was what you alluded to at the very top with, yeah, hey, let's just get Roddy Piper on the houses, try to pop something. Yeah. Uh, okay, we'll have him win battle royals. I found a very interesting note from a Piper Perfect dark match. Oh, this might be the thing that I spotted about 30 minutes before we went on the air. Go ahead. So he works perfect the day after the IC title changes taped with Perfect and Tornado. So Perfect has beaten Tornado and wins the Intercontinental title. But for about a month, Tornado still works as the Intercontinental champion. Yes. But anyway, the next day at the challenge tapings, Perfect wrestles Piper. Yes, he does. And perfect wins. Clean. Clean. With the perfect plex. Roddy Piper does not do many clean jobs. This is a very short list. I did not know about this at all until reading. And after the match, apparently, shakes perfect's hand. Mm-hmm. So this kind of plays into what Dave was talking about, about the heel turn, maybe. Now, I guess this is on a Roddy Piper DVD. This, this match? match? Yes. Really? I didn't know that. Like, getting rowdy, the unreleased, or, like, deep cuts or something? I don't have that DVD. This match was not readily available online. So I've never seen it. But I just found Roddy Piper doing a random clean job to Mr. Perfect in December of 1990 and then shaking his hand afterwards to be very interesting. Yeah, there's a note in the Observer about how the crowd had absolutely no idea how to react to the handshake because they didn't... Obviously, it was very unconventional for the time, and it just seemed very... Yeah, it would have seemed extremely out of character, but I wonder if this is like a chicken and egg thing where people read into the heel turn, the potential for a heel turn because of that, or... Yeah, which came first is, is, I guess, what I'm trying to get to here. Is it the fact that the rumors of the heel turn came because he did this, or did they use this as an experiment because this was the idea for where they wanted to go? Yeah, I just, you know, you think you know everything, and then you, you know, you do a great podcast like this, and you learn something new. <laughs> I had no idea that happened. Yeah, real out of the blue. Um, Piper's a commentator still at this point. He did the commentary for Survivor Series. Didn't I mean I, I still think he's, he's he gets a little bit ropier as he goes. He actually seems to get worse as he goes along, which is <laughs> like the the exact opposite of, of of how things really should work. But uh, again, he's still kind of wild, and he's still again he's he's making his uh and and I suppose this kind of ties into the bigger picture. But that was the first pay per view that was uh, broadcast for the Armed Forces on the Armed Forces Network, which Piper kind of uh, loudly and proudly touts here at Survivor Series. But uh, only had a note on his uh, his work as a commentator. Yeah, so the first several weeks after SummerSlam, almost every squash match, Piper gets this bizarre obsession with baby faces turning their backs. <laughs> like, he points it out, and I guess it was kind of weird, like, where it just drew me to the fact that all babyface squash matches on TV in that era were apparently starting with babyface turns his back to the jobber, jobber runs and attacks him. Then there's some no selling and we just go to the finish. But Piper constantly pointing that out, I, it, it was just odd. He just kept harping on it. 
it's like we said before with the warrior at SummerSlam, and he just decides that he's gonna start picking a fight with the warrior just because. And it's like he's just poking holes through the things, and we'll get to you know, obviously Tony Atlas, which you mentioned last week too. Yeah. He just likes he's just like the the guy on the couch just poking holes. So following Survivor Series, mere days afterwards, actually, uh, the main event airs. Um, considered one of the better shows in a long time by the WWF. Uh, this is the show that has the Warrior DiBiase match, which again was curious. DiBiase eating the leg drop from Hogan, I believe, at Survivor Series, and then DiBiase gets the match with Warrior here. Uh, but this ends with Randy Savage attacking the Warrior and leaving him lane. They'd obviously set this up previously on television uh, with Sensational Sherry challenging the Warrior and Warrior saying that he doesn't want to wrestle uh savage if he's was he's hiding behind a skirt is what warrior says yes they they, they do the first big angle on this show savage who i should mention was at survivor series dressed as a barbershop pole doing a promo against the ultimate warrior as well (laughs) to 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 tease this um also on this show the buddy rose blow away diet (laughs) the phone number was incredible i could not believe they did that one five hundred L-A-R-D-A-S-S. Yes, that's 1-500 Lardass. Beautiful. Wonderful humor. And as you said, they had a good chortle around the uh, their own office tables about this, apparently, at Titan. Yeah, they uh, apparently liked it, yeah. Mr. Perfect uh, wrestles the big boss man on this show. Rick Martel and Tio Santana, a match originally in what for SummerSlam, as we talked about in part two, does happen here. Martel kind of shockingly wins clean with the Boston Crab. Yeah, that caught me by surprise. Tito, we mentioned what an unsung hero he was in the company, 84 to 90. Well, at this point, he's clearly a JTTS. Jobber to the stars. Sad. Yeah, I mean, he'd been around for a long time. You know, six. You know, we talked about six years is a long time to be in the same promotion. And uh, yeah, it gets it just keep, continues into 91. He jobs to the Mountie at WrestleMania, and then it's on to El Matador. The show only, well, only, it is an 8.6 rating and a 16 <laughs> share. By far the lowest TV audience of a WWF primetime special, uh, lower than many of the Saturday Night's main event shows, doing a mere 15 million viewers, folks. <laughs> only 15 million. A pitiful number for the World Wrestling Federation, apparently. Um, in a fun little side note, uh, this was originally supposed to be a 90-minute Saturday, Saturday night's main event show. NBC bumped them to Friday and cut the time to an hour, and obviously this does have an effect with something that we'll get to later on in the podcast. But uh, Kyle, I know that you want to talk about that 8.6. The 8.6? Yes. So, first of all, it was really funny. Only 15 million viewers. Like they would kill. Can you imagine if a WWE show today did 15 million viewers? Vince McMahon would like just like run out the window uh, <laughs> in Titan Towers. My God. So this was though at the time another sign of the WWE's declining popularity. Three straight bad ratings on NBC going back to the summer edition of Saturday Night's Main Event and that just awful Oktoberfest Saturday Night's oh, Main Event. Horrific. Uh, I have a question. Did having more pay-per-views throughout the year ultimately hurt Saturday night's main event? Because when the show was in its heyday, 86 and 87 for argument's sake, there were fewer pay-per-views then. You now have more pay-per-views on the calendar, four per year, and the big matches had to be saved for those and could no longer be on Saturday night's main event. So am I barking up a tree for nothing or what? I think it's valid to bark, but... The one thing that kind of strikes me with that, when 
think of Sunday Night's main events in their successful period, people think of, I would think, Hogan and Andre. I think the people would think of Hogan and Orndorff. Yo, keep, yo, these big key matches that they may do on pay-per-view. But at the same time, it's like, look what they're putting on these shows now. Like, that October Saturday Night's main event, it's Hogan and Tugboat versus Rhythm and Blues. Like, there's a, a significant dip in the quality and the name and the, and the star power and, the, con- and, and the, the sense of consequences and meaning for the show anyway. When you try and make a comparison, even though I agree that obviously pay-per-view kind of, that becomes your destination to do big matches. The idea of building up for Saturday night's main events, they weren't, that, that was where there was a lack of focus. It felt like, you, could, you, you especially when you watch these TVs, these Saturday night's main events don't get a ton of focus. We talked about on the previous episode how Warrior and Rude, they kind of had to sidearm the fact that they were going to wrestle on a Saturday night's main event in July because at the same time they're building the cage match at SummerSlam. It felt like the focus wasn't on Saturday night's main events. And again, that might be a knock-on effect of the fact that they also had pay-per-views on the mind. Yeah, you know, you, when you explain it, the with the Hogan tugboat versus Rhythm and Blues example, you're right. It just felt like they weren't trying. You know, let, let's yeah. not excuse WWF completely here. In some of these matches, there was just no drama in who was going to win. And if there was, it would always go to a non-finish. <laughs> so, yes. you, you know, a lot of self-inflicted blows with the downfall of Saturday night's main event uh, as well, at least in my opinion. And we've talked about this Oktoberfest one. What was up with some of the goofy gimmicks they started doing on these Saturday night's main events in 1990? You had the Wild Kingdom over the summer with that Lord Alfred Hayes and Gene Okerlund wandering through the jungle. That was kind of perversely entertaining. It, because of Gene, I guess. <laughs> but the Oktoberfest thing was horrible. Uh, you know, in April, the last one they did with Jesse, him and Vince came riding out on horses. They never did that stuff, did they? On the old ones, they had a Halloween one in 85. But I don't really remember these sort of ridiculously cartoony, campy themes that were going on between the matches on other Saturday Night's Main event. There was a a JYD Jimmy Hart water slide oh, one. That was the one I was going to mention. January 86 oh. when they do that. They're, they're in Tampa, right? And they do like a few promos yeah. at the poolside with like Roddy and Jesse. And then, yeah, JYD and Jimmy Hart on the water slide race. That's kind of a bit wacky. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe they <laughs> felt like they were trying to recapture some hokey old glory. Yeah, but it just, I don't think it really worked. And no. the, did you catch the genius in the Oktoberfest thing, the king of stuffing sausage. <laughs> and Mean Jeans. Yeah, Mean Jeans. Oh, I know how you love to stuff sausage. <laughs> you know, and everyone else just having a straight face. Like how, like, how did Mr. Fuji just, like, keep a straight face during that whole bit? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. But uh, I-, I will say... That uh, the week of Survivor Series and the main event that follows it, it does feel like there's a bit more of an effort in the promotional kind of material to focus on the Warrior. We kind of, uh, yeah, there's a new open to Superstars that airs around this time that kind of focuses on him at the end. There was a new video to sell arena shows, apparently, in the Observer that was mentioned that features him. Uh, the Friday special and the Survivor's booking of him getting the last pin in the, uh, the music, uh, according to Meltzer, was a sign that they were actually kind of focusing on the Warrior for the first time, really, in a while. Uh, that combined with actually programming in with Randy Savage, a feud that has drawn solid, if unspectacular, numbers uh, pretty much straight away. So, yeah, I thought that was kind of an interesting take. Uh, there's a lot of kind of 
almost unspoken focus on the warrior, I suppose. Hogan's not even on that main event. No, and I, you know, I think the narrative is, well, by this point, we already mentioned it, that the decision, it was very obvious they were going back to Hogan. But, you know, Warrior's doing better here than he was over the summer, arguably. And we should mention, too, that his likeness, and this, I think, went back to the summer one, too, was featured at the end of the Saturday Night's Main Event Open, like when the show, you know, when they, the do-do-do-do-do-do, when that whole theme was over, and they cut to the live audience, it was the Warrior's likeness that they were showing on the screen, not Hogan. Uh, even if, you know, in the summer when Hogan was still the focus. But, like you mentioned, no Hogan. On the main event in November, Warrior headlines against DiBiase, and this Randy Savage feud. Do we think he was the best option for a Warrior feud at this point? He seemed to compare favorably to Rude as a challenger to the Warrior. I think that he was, and it's kind of surprising when you look at kind of the trajectory of Savage. You mentioned last week that you feel that kind of from from SummerSlam 89 to around this time, I'd say, the dark era of Randy Savage, the real dark age of, of him being a red hot character and out of nowhere gets kind of out of nowhere gets this deal with a warrior and it feels like it clicks. It did. And do you know who I give a lot of credit to for this feud working off the jump? Let's hear it. Sensational Sherry. I mean, where does she rank in the MVP uh, consideration of 1989, 1990 WWF? I think very high for me. She's, she's yeah. It was, it was especially kind of a standout watching this stuff back and you know, just how impactful. I mean, she's, she's the heat in the Savage Dusty feud. It's her. She's the focus. And again, like, she does such a great job pretty much the entire, even in day nine where, you know, you got Zeus doing the, you know, the, the kind of rather useless stand there and let Savage do all the, the talking. But Sherry, you know, Sherry's a fantastic character and she lends so much to, like, anything that she's involved with. And here with a warrior she just felt like she had a lot of heat and anywhere she went, she took the heat with her. And because of that, when, because again, when they started doing the Savage Warrior feud, it was really Sherry and the Warrior going face to face on the Brother Love show yes. and, and, make, and making the challenge on Savage's behalf. And it's her that's carrying the load and the crowd's going crazy because Warrior's getting in her face. Yeah. And for those who have never seen the angle, Sherry comes out to challenge uh, or to ask for, you know, to, to challenge Warrior on behalf of Savage. And she starts slapping the warrior. Mm -hmm. She slaps him like three times. And that's the real impetus for the feud because, you know, warrior couldn't do anything back. Now we know in the uh, early stages of 1991, things would get a little controversial. Slaughter wasn't the only controversy in yes. early 91. Yeah, because they did these warrior uh, savage cage matches where Sherry would get like left hanging in her bra and panties. Right? Like yeah, Meltzer, right. I think did, Meltzer just hated like a whole issue to it, I think, <laughs> as his cover story. And so, <laughs> you know, he, Warrior eventually gets his heat back on Sherry, I guess, in that form, that questionable form. But, you know, here it worked great because Warrior's like, well, I can't respond. I can't do anything because she's a woman. And But she just keeps slapping him. And, and it really worked. I thought that segment on Brother Love more so than anything uh, in the Rude feud. And you talk about Sherry being a wonderful addition to the Savage package. Let's not forget the matches themselves. Because she was such the polar opposite of Elizabeth, who would never get involved in the matches. Sherry always getting involved on the outside, it always added that little extra bit of heat you wanted. The heel, the good kind of heel heat you wanted in matches. So, 
Um, yeah, I'm with you. I think Savage certainly compares favorably to Rude. Another reason, he's a former champion. We're yeah, Rude. Got, yeah, a former world champion. Now, the flip side is, I know he goes over Dusty at SummerSlam, but Savage, you know, he's been around the block, and he's still a little bit of that quote-unquote tainted heel, what we referred to, what we talked about in part two. He, he'd eaten several high-profile TV losses earlier in the year. Hogan, Dusty at WrestleMania six. And that is something you just didn't see with Hogan opponents. Yeah, and I think that maybe this is one of those where perhaps Savage has got that kind of unique charisma where he can just if he's back in that spot when he's been when he's been away for a while, it feels like he's in his natural position. Yeah, so I mean, I don't think it was the hugest deal. I just think it's interesting to point out, going back to that Warrior Hogan discussion we had in part two, that you know, here we go, Randy Savage, he's been around the block. People have seen him lose as opposed to, you know, an earthquake, for instance, who was pushed as the monster heel, you know, or someone who the warrior got after WrestleMania 7, The Undertaker. Again, you know, untainted. Yeah, untainted heel. So, yeah, this feud did work better. I'll tell you what did not work was the sister love segment. That was so bad. That was so awful. God so, damn. Brother Love, uh, I guess Bruce talked about it in his kayfabe commentaries. That was all Vince's idea. Vince thought it was, like, so funny. And I watched the segment back, which, for those of you who have never seen it, it is Warrior putting a blonde wig on Brother Love, and I guess it's his way of getting heat back on a quote-unquote woman since he couldn't hit Sherry on television. He attacked Brother Love dressed in a wig, and Vince was, like, laughing it and seemed to be perversely enjoying it. And he was the only one. I was going to say, I'm glad somebody enjoyed it because I watched this back and it couldn't end quick enough. Were we surprised Warrior and Macho were not opposing captains at Survivor Series? Yes, in a way, because like you said, it really kind of, it did stick out like a sore thumb that Warrior had absolutely nothing going on on a pay-per-view. But I can kind of see why they didn't because clearly they were going for the slow burn with Warrior and Savage. They, to me, it feels like as soon as they start this, it kind of feels like they're either eyeing up the Rumble or WrestleMania just from just straight from the jump in terms of like how they pace you know they, they, they keep them separate it's it's sherry doing the challenges it's warrior on the uh, sorry it's, it's it's savage doing the uh the studio promos talking about you know when he sees him face to face he does the standalone promo away from everybody else at survivor series they and then they did start wrestling on the house shows around this time um but it wasn't like on television they were kind of I mean, they, they they were very much, they seemed very keen to keep them apart anyway. So it seems to me like right from the off, they were thinking this was the Rumble or WrestleMania. Yeah, it had that long-term feel as a program. Yeah. Uh, Sister Love was not funny, but you know what was funny? <laughs> this little tidbit I found on the history of WWE.com. So war, you mentioned Warrior and Savage were working on the house shows. And one particular house show they worked against each other, Salt Lake City, November 1st. And they had a local DJ at this show, I guess was the guest ring announcer, and Savage wins by count out. And this local DJ announces Savage as the new champion. And I don't know if that was an intentional fuck up or what, but to get heat back, and I maybe just send the crowd home happy, the warrior goes to beat up the DJ. <laughs> Did you read about this at all or no? I, I did, and the guy didn't know oh. he was coming. <laughs> oh, he did it. Okay, so the warrior clotheslines this poor sap and busts the guy's lip open. 
This guy's just trying to spin classic rock records to the Mormons, and he's getting bloody lips, man. <laughs> he threatens a law. Apparently, they were like, on the day, when he came back behind the curtain, they were all threatened. Like, oh, Christ, Warrior, what have you done? And as he goes up behind the curtain, he's all, he's happy as a clam. He's just like, hey, that was great. You know, I got to be part of the show. That was really cool. And they were oh. kind of breathing the sigh. They were breathing the sigh of relief thinking, oh, well, at least they won't sue us. And then about a couple of weeks later, <laughs> he decides that he will. Oh, wow. I did not know any of this. <laughs> yes. So, so it, the guy acts <laughs> happy at first. And then, you know, he's like, oh, well, wait a minute. I could pretend that i'm not happy and sue it's oh, very well, interesting that's it. it's like yeah I, I guess like he probably you know some people found out like on the day when he's wrapped up in it he doesn't give a shit he's fine and he's hey it's only a bloody lip be a man you know but yeah. the day you know as, as time goes by and he probably hears from people saying that was bullshit really that, that they, they attacked you without you knowing and it's like yeah you know what maybe it is so yeah i, I don't know i haven't gotten to the point yet where we see how this uh, this kind of wraps up but the, the last observer i read as we were covering 1990 is that he is actually going to sue <laughs> wow Wow. So I didn't know if that was a, part of it on purpose or not, if the warrior was just like, hey, you bastard, you announced, well, let me just kind of like, you know, do go into business for myself and attack you because you screwed up the ring announcement. So you, so it wasn't planned at all. This wasn't like a thing to send the crowd home happy. No, he, they had no idea that it was coming. He basically, <laughs> because he saw the count out win and Savage wins, he's, you know, he doesn't know any different. Hey, the title must have changed hands, right? Savage is the winner. Savage is the champ. So he just makes the announcement, and Warrior, knowing that's not what's supposed to happen, just on the fly decides he's going to throw some of those wild haymakers. Yeah, I guess that makes sense because attacking a local DJ isn't exactly babyface heat, unless if it's <laughs> you know, unless if it's some like you know some troll DJ that nobody likes, and you know I don't even know what this guy's name was, but um, yeah, so that that's funny. I, that that's funny stuff. That's good stuff. Now, we are about an hour or so into this podcast, and it's worth mentioning at this point a name that really hasn't had a lot of focus so far, but will obviously be one of the key focuses, if not the key focus for the rest of the year and beyond, Sergeant Slaughter. Now, with the irony of them ramping up the Warrior, like we mentioned there with just some of the video work they were doing, is the fact that the mega push of Slaughter was on the horizon. We didn't talk about Slaughter too much in part two because it seems more... Uh, kind of yeah, The opportunity of the time is now because it's Slaughter... Brought in as a heel over the summer with those vignettes. Uh, they, they air a number of them where he's just, again, originally Drill Sergeant Slaughter is his name as he's, as he's first introduced. Talking about America going soft, accepting a pinko commie like Nikolai Volkov with open arms. Um, there's even one where he points a gun at the camera. <laughs> Talking about if, you're, if you're not with me, then uh, I, guess I'm, I guess you're against me and points his machine gun at us at home. Um, but it feels like it's a failure of a character from the jump. When they do the angle at SummerSlam, where he's on the Brother Love show, the crowd, watching his back, they didn't give a shit at all. It seems like he's only getting like the most half-hearted heat for some pretty heavy political jabs about Saddam Hussein, who's good for <laughs> so, someone who's apparently very close to, even though he butchers his name at SummerSlam. <laughs> <laughs> give, give Brother Love I the forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm starting to kind of question now how, how deep these, these ties lie. Um, yeah. well, lost in translation, I suppose, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I know that there's, there's some kind of uh, questions about the actual legitimate medical history of Sergeant Slaughter. I think this is probably Exhibit A. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> look, I agree with you that it was jarring how little this seemed to be working initially 
Do we think that had to do with the fact that he was married to a very sorry baby face like Nikolai Volkov? <laughs> it didn't help. You know, it was kind of like, Nikolai, yeah, they tried with him, but we talk about these, you know, career-long heels who have late-career baby faces never really working. It feels that, like, when you're feuding with Nikolai Volkov, you're not really being slotted as someone who would be looked at as a potential main eventer, unless if it's like a one match squash. And that's not what the slaughter Volkov program was. It was stretched out all the way until survivor series. And it's, it's so strange. Cause it's like, again, like it doesn't feel in those first three months, like they've got big plans for him. He's feuding with, with, with Volkov, which kind of feels like the kind of the bottom feud in the promotion. The, October, it's, no, yeah, it's the Oktoberfest there, so that's made, but he wrestles Coco Beware, and he's going like 50-50 with Coco, and it's like, Jesus Christ, yeah, he gets the Survivor Series and cuts a terrible promo, by the way, <laughs> when he's, he's surrounded by the, the real rogues gallery team of the Orient Express and Boris Zukov, and he cuts this promo that just goes on for six days, talking about how he's had, you know, they've been treated to this great meal, thanks to Saddam Hussein, while the troops are watching on the Armed Forces Network with K-rations. everything about it the the delivery the content it feels like it's not working it feels like the character sucks yep it was way better when akeem was part of that team for that (laughs) short before akeem quit like it was so great to see slaughter cutting his very typical late 1990 promo with akeem dancing in the background looking very uneasy so we need to talk about a very significant addition to the Sergeant Slaughter package, being General Adnan. Uh-huh. They introduced him on Brother Love, and I texted you when I was watching this just to make sure I wasn't going insane. It Calling it a shoot, I think, would be a bit much because that term's overused, but it really seemed like Roddy Piper on commentary was talking to Vince McMahon the promoter, and not Vince McMahon, the broadcast partner, when he kept saying, are you cool with this? <laughs> or something to that effect. Yeah. I, uh, there are some elements of this that, in terms of if you're going to do it, not that this makes a big difference, I did like when they introduced him on Brother Love, Brother Love kind of selling horror himself. This, this shameless yes. panderer to the heels. Brother Love is even kind of in shock and all. Oh my God, this guy is basically Saddam Hussein and he's here. And then, yeah, like you say, when they introduce him in front of Piper and Vince and Piper, again, being the voice of the fan at home on the, on, on the armchair, saying, Vince, come on, man. I, I believe, you know, and again, he could have been just playing in character, but there were some lines where it really felt like he was talking to Vince, you know, the promoter, not Vince, the broadcast partner. But still, yeah, Piper, what, what did he keep yelling? Oh, this is garbage. This is garbage, man. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, they were going heavy heat here. They sure were. And, um, and, and once you, and again, and I know you, now it's time to get into it. Once you commit to a character to this level, I guess you got to go all the way. It was the only way that you were going to justifiably get Sergeant Slaw in the main event at WrestleMania at this point. I wouldn't have done it, but if you're going to, eh, I still wouldn't have done it. But I can understand the wrestling rationale. Let's use that term. The wrestling rationale. Well, if we're going to go with him, we have to get the most heat on him we can possibly can. What's going to work? Well, let's get Saddam Hussein's you know, real life old buddy and uh, and someone who looks a little bit like him, I suppose, um, to be his ally. And yeah, it's one of those things where, again, this is kind of a cause and effect thing of 
the summer was so cold and the aftermath had to have been pretty scary. Hogan's back and numbers aren't getting any better. And with those numbers down, it leaves, you can see Vincent Hogan scrambling for an answer. And it should be mentioned here that obviously since WrestleMania 6, they've been talking about the LA Coliseum. They've been talking about how they're going to pack 100,000 people into WrestleMania 7. And around the time of, I want to say, I think it is June. It would be June because it was after the bash. There is actually a bit of talk in the Observer about what the match is that's going to sell out the LA Coliseum and how it didn't look like there was anything on the horizon that would have that big of, a, of an interest. And it leads to discussion of Ric Flair. Ric Flair, obviously, who had been the perennial NWA WCW champion, loses to Sting at the Great American Bash and apparently does try and get out of his deal with Jim Hurd shortly afterwards in order to do this match. And obviously it doesn't happen. Hurd does not just let him go. Uh, he'd wait one more year to do that. But with that out of the picture, I can kind of see their concern. They're scrambling. They probably don't have faith in Warrior and Hogan at this point after the disappointing number at WrestleMania 6. Whether that was due to the babyface dynamic or the build, as we've talked about, that's a separate issue. But they had this in mind. that They needed something that was going to be big. And to them, the idea that Slaughter going all the way, winning the title... The, the, you know, they didn't know that the war was going to happen, but it looked quite likely, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Hogan, obviously, going to, you know, going to see the troops and doing all the happy PR. That will work. But the timing of it and the way it plays out does not look so good. Now, there's a lot of issues to kind of talk about here in the fallout of this. And I know that you kind of had some kind of thoughts on Flair. Okay, three things from what you just said. One, the Flair factor. If he comes in, and yeah, I listened to, I think the guys on Between the Sheets did a podcast covering that week's issue where Meltzer explored the idea of Flair coming to WWF in 1990. But if he comes in in the fall, he gets Slaughter's spot, essentially, right? Meaning he beats the Warrior for the title and drops to Hogan at Mania? You'd think so. Okay. Was it better for the WWF that Flair comes in a year later with the belt having not lost it on television as opposed to the fresh loss to Sting. It's kind of an interesting conundrum, six of one, half a dozen of another, because it would have, from Flair's credibility perspective, if he was going to come in, it w- the ideal scenario is Flair comes in with the belt in 1990. Yes. But since, if, if he'd have come in in 1990, you know that the, the fact that he was the deposed champion probably would have been on their mind. I wonder if they would have done the same thing and made the same mistake where they kind of put him on the house shows and judge that as the metric for whether or not Flair and Hogan has the legs for a pay-per-view match, which I think that match works far better as than a house show program. I think that time obviously kind of proves that to be the case. So while I do think that it's obviously better for Flair individually to come when he does, but it didn't actually play out any better anyway. (laughs) No, because he didn't draw particularly well. And I guess the flip side is they needed a top-level heel a lot worse here in 1990, I yeah. think, than in 91. Well, they had Sid on I the guess that could, be ar- that could be argued. I mean, Sid was going to turn, and, but Jake Roberts was on fire in 91. True. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. You're right. I think it is a six-to-one, half a dozen to the other. I don't think there's a clear answer whether it was be- whether it would have been better if Flair comes in 90 or 91. Now let's turn to Slaughter because he is going to be a big focus, not just in the next couple minutes, but obviously at the very end of this podcast. 
knowing what we know now about him, the bad press that that character got, especially once the war does get going, and the fact he did not draw a good number as the champion at WrestleMania 7. Should Sergeant Slaughter never been brought in at all? And I'm going to give you this caveat. If you say no, I've got a counter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, it's interesting not to parrot Meltzer, but Meltzer had a thought that if you were going to bring Slaughter in, the charm to slaughter is early to bring him in early and do the big match where he puts the face over early because any longer then you kind of expose the weaknesses that he has and maybe that will affect him drawing so uh i don't necessarily know that i wouldn't have brought him in i just know that i wouldn't have gone the way but then again it's like if you're going to bring him in, the idea to bring him in is to work in a key capacity, you'd think. Even though it doesn't look that way in the first few months. But you almost surely have to go... If you, You're not bringing Slaughter in with the idea that he's going to, you know, pay off in five years, you know? No. All right. My counter that I alluded to, if you said, no, Sergeant Slaughter should never have existed uh, during this time period in WWF. The counter is... He and Warrior draw what is a shockingly good buy rate at the 1991 Royal Rumble. I think one of the big eye-openers for the two of us we've talked off air was that buy rate. I did okay. not remember that show doing that well. It's a good show, by the way. Uh, it's a great show. Yeah, the Rumble itself is not very good. If it was a better-than-average Rumble, that would have been like one of the all-time great WWF pay-per-views. Quite frankly, because the undercard kicks all sorts of ass. Oh, yeah. And so, let's consider this as an alternate timeline. And it's funny what you talked about Meltzer saying, because I agree. I think you bring Slaughter in when you did, and you immediately marry him to either Hogan or Warrior. You don't waste time with Nikolai Volkov, or at least all the time they did waste. Like, okay, Volkov would be someone he can just beat on TV right off the bat, and I'm done with Nikolai Volkov. Hit the bricks, Nikolai. Back to Lithuania for you, okay? <laughs> but, and there's going to be some eye-popping numbers we go over at the end of the show again that justify that Slaughter should never have won the title. So, but he did draw a good number at the Royal Rumble. So to me... I think you do the Warrior Slaughter title match at Royal Rumble, and Slaughter just loses. And again, when we get to the end, uh, and we've got all our facts in front of us, I'll talk more about why it's very clear that that's what they should have done. But to me, I think you do bring Slaughter in because it did good. I mean, again, this is cheating because we're privy to the numbers after the fact, but he just should have lost at the Royal Rumble. And, you know, the war's heating up then, and you get rid of him. Just get him off television. And I think you avert a little bit of controversy there. Yes, a, a tremendous amount, as it turns out. And I th when we talked about this a little bit off air last week, I agree that you ha I think doing the Rumble match is not a bad idea. Having Warrior win that and use that as a, as, a, as a way to back up Warrior more and give him some more credibility. People in that, I know we're skipping into 91 a little bit here, but in that Rumble match, those first three minutes of that match when the Warriors just destroying Slaughter and ripping up the flag, those people are going fucking ballistic. Dude, the ripping... Uh, look, I am, like, the least nationalistic American you'll probably ever do a podcast with, Liam. <laughs> <laughs> but the that bit, you're right, where he rips up that Iraqi flag, it is almost frightening. 
how hot the crowd is for that. Oh, yeah. And then, like, Roddy Piper's, like, just blatantly cheering. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, rip that flag up. Like, <laughs> it is crazy, man. And you're right. And it's not a bad match. No, it's it was not. really heated. I mean, they worked their ass off. I mean, you know, again, Savage and Sherry helped out quite a bit yeah. <laughs> in adding some heat. But it is not a bad match. And it obviously did draw some interest. I just think the wrong person won. And we'll talk about that more later on. We will. Savage on special teams with maybe the greatest running in wrestling history as he ambushes Warrior in the aisle. And then Where the off. hell did he come from? <laughs> and then runs off so fast you can see smoke coming from his feet. Yeah, that, I just, I love, you know, we joked about maybe some of Piper's shortcomings on commentary, but him yelling, where the hell did he come from? When he just runs in and runs out like that is awesome. Uh, the LA Coliseum, this is really important. WrestleMania 7 is viewed as a failure, I think, for two reasons. One, the slaughter angle and how the specter of that hangs over the show. And two, the fact they had to move it to the LA Sports Arena. In retrospect, again, it's easy to look at things through hindsight, but was the WWF just overly optimistic about being able to put 100,000 people in an arena? Like, why did they think they could do that in 1991? Well, yeah, because when you think about it, why do you make that move unless you know exactly what you're going to do? Yeah, it just, you know, Bruce, I think, talked about this on his podcast that the L.A. Coliseum people showed them, you know, meaning the office, you know, the key officials of WWF, like this incredible video. And it really wowed them. And Vince was like, we've got to run this place mm. next year at WrestleMania. And it sounds good. Oh, my God, we're running this, you know, 100,000 seat venue. It's going to be the biggest WrestleMania of all time. But you're right. Unless if you have a very good battle plan of what you're going to draw with. You're just setting yourself up for failure, in my opinion. Like I said, we talked about this with Mania 6. Maybe the narrative on Mania 6 isn't as disappointing if you don't think it's going to be the biggest match since Hogan Andre. When, I, you know, I thought that was kind of an unreasonable expectation. We talked about that a lot in part one. I just think if you aren't hyping this will be the biggest crowd in wrestling history and you don't do slaughter, WrestleMania 7 may be looked at historically a lot differently. Yeah, because it's the fall that, that exposes how, 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 how things really are. It's, it's the fact that it's, again, like you say, no, Hogan Warrior was not Hogan Andre, but that was the comparison, that was the expectation they had. Comparing the idea that they talked, again, it's the fact they talked about it so much, and I actually kind of wanted to get your thoughts on this as someone, obviously, who was in America at the time, and still are, but yes. the fact that... They- <laughs> For the time being. <laughs> yeah. The fact that they actually had talked about yeah, they'd run these vignettes for the LA Coliseum throughout the other dude at SummerSlam as well. And they didn't really, apparently, outside of the LA television, they didn't even tell people on TV that they were switching to what they go to, the LA Sports Arena, because there are about I think there's like it's like two weeks before the show, there were three thousand tickets that they haven't been able to confirm that had originally been purchased for the Coliseum to actually be activated for the sports arena because there were people that had bought from out of state and the people out of state didn't know what was going on. So I wondered if that was something that you were kind of aware of at the time. So I don't know when I realized the switch happened. Obviously, I rent the video and it was, you know, I'm 
oh, okay, it's not the only sports arena. And maybe, you know, I had seen clips of the show beforehand. I don't know when it would have been when all, because I think they started de-emphasizing the Coliseum on TV. They, they stopped running those commercials, obviously, once the decision was made not to run there. Um, I don't have the exact timeline in front of me, but it might have been something that years later, after the fact, like I watched, I would have watched WrestleMania six and seen the hype for the Coliseum, and all of a sudden, I was like, "Wait a minute, they never did this. Mm-hmm. They ran an arena." I, I honestly, Liam, I cannot remember as a ten-year-old child when I figured out, "Wait a minute, this isn't the LA Coliseum," because I didn't watch <laughs> a show live on pay-per-view. I think I would have known what the L.A. Coliseum was when I was 10. You know, they had the Olympics there in 84. I was too young for that, but, uh, you know, I mean, I was alive, but I I don't remember watching the 84 Olympics. Uh, we should note one thing, and I, not, again, I'm not trying to offer any excuses to the company, but the decision to run the L.A. Coliseum was made before this downtick in business we've been talking about throughout 1990. Like, they were pretty confident about the state of the promotion pre-WrestleMania 6. Yes. Uh, Now, there's a lot going on from a business perspective inside and outside the WWF. As we mentioned uh, in part one of the series, the downfall, and there's actually many reasons why there's a downfall in 1991 and 1992, but two of the things that kind of see the seeds sown, let me get that out of my mouth, it's not just, obviously, what goes on with Sergeant Slaughter. Elsewhere, Vince McMahon has one eye on a new business venture. Uh, we alluded to this, obviously, in the previous two parts, but after waiting in the wings for a couple of months, at Joe Weider's Mr. Olympia contest on September 5th, Vince McMahon brought a sponsorship booth to promote his new bodybuilding lifestyles magazine that will be promoted in the fall. Tom Platt, who was a popular competitor at Mr. Olympia several years back, was in McMahon's booth all day long. After the show was finished, a team of attractive models in black evening gowns showed up and handed out leaflets announcing the formation of the World Bodybuilding Federation, a, a well subsidiary company of Titan Sports. One WWF official said that within the office, officials are saying they believe the company could make more money in the future in bodybuilding than in wrestling. Uh, one of the mottos of the WBF is bodybuilding the way it was meant to be, which those in bodybuilding world, uh, in the bodybuilding world take to mean bodybuilding without steroid tests. Uh, the other thing that's being talked about backstage about the WBF uh, within the WWF, other than the obvious stock costs, was the grumbling about the need to sign bodybuilders to big contracts to lure them away from Weeders' uh, IBFF, as in six-figure deals to get them to jump, uh, which was a big deal to the guys, obviously, who were not on guaranteed money, Pay was minimal while injured, which Rick Rude uh, found out previously and would go on to find out. And most of the guys actually only got paid five grand for WrestleMania 6 that year. Most of the guys on the undercard. Woo! So, yeah. All right. I talked about this a little bit in part two. Bruce Pritchard's comments on the WBF because he did that timeline, which we've referenced several times here on yep. the year 1990. Uh, kayfabe commentaries. And when asked on that show, now, this was only a couple of years ago, so it's we're many, many years removed from the WBF at this point. Bruce says everyone in the office thought this was a bad idea, except for Vince. He talks about no one got what the WBF was supposed to be, as Vince told him it was supposed to be, quote, a lifestyle. The talent was also <laughs> pissed, as Vince spent more attention on the WBF, and those WBF contracts were guaranteed Unlike the WWF ones. Uh, funny bit here. Bruce says Ico Pro was the most disgusting shit he ever had. And the <laughs> drop 
The drops tasted like bad licorice. He did say the bars were decent, though. Well, that's a good review. Yeah. You got so, to get him. Yeah. So, interesting that Bruce pretty much lines up with Meltzer uh, 90% uh, of, of what Meltzer reported in real time. The only difference there is you have this quote that in 1990, people in the office are very ecstatic about the WBF, where Bruce in, you know, whatever, a couple of years ago said no one thought it was a good idea, which... You know, it could be a convenient thing you can just say, um, because let's be honest, no one's going to defend the WBF now. So in other words, this is a very typical Bruce-Dave thing, where Bruce agrees with 90% of what Dave said, but he's of course going to harp on the other 10%. Harp on the 10% that, to be honest, and I know this is rich coming from two guys who are doing a podcast about year th- 30 years on, but <laughs> very much a retrospective analysis of, yeah, that was a bad idea. Maybe, maybe he did hold that opinion at the time, I, I'm not one to say yeah, but... I mean- we don't know who Meltzer talked to in 1990 either. Exactly. Bruce, I mean, Bruce very well. I mean, you know, to be fair, he could have thought it was stupid from the start and somebody else sure. in the office maybe thought it was great. Yeah, we don't know that. I wasn't there. Bruce was there, though, as we know. Yeah, of course, as he likes to tell us. Um, yes. But, he, but hey, he was, uh, maybe that was the case. But having said that, the subject of steroids in sports was getting a lot of press around this time. Uh, by the fall of 1990, action was being taken. We talked previously about on October 5th of this year, 1990, Congress toughens its stance with the Anabolic Steroids Control Act, which places steroids in the same legal class as amphetamines, methamphetamines, opium, and morphine. Yeah, and Congress had acted two years earlier with what was called the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988, creating criminal penalties for those who, quote, distribute or possess anabolic steroids with the intent to distribute for any use in humans other than the treatment of disease based on the order of a physician. These two laws are what they use to get Dr. George Zahorian. Yes, obviously an enormous issue in 1991, but that is a name that does not get uh, done to come into our purview for the rest of this. But again, yeah. it's it's not like this is something that isn't on people's minds. Um, I'm see that this is an interesting one. That act that you did, the one that you talked about there in 1988, if I'm not mistaken, I think is that the one that takes it from being like a misdemeanor to a felony to do that. I think I think it might be. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it toughens the stance. I'm yes. A li- I was a little unclear. I was trying to just do some rogue research. I know that most of our fans care more about the wrestling and not, uh, you know, the largesse of congressional bills. But it did seem that yes, it was it was a more severe penalty because whenever you up the legal class of of a drug, you know, it becomes a bigger deal. So um, I think you're right in what you just said there. So the WBF, and again, this, there's a lot of this that bleeds into 1991, but they start it here. It's, this is obviously a huge project for Vince at a time when if, you know, the WBF really needs a laser focus to help get things back on track. And he's got one eye on trying to sign these guys from Weeder for, for, his, for his competition. And obviously this bleeds into the start of 1991 where he holds his press conference where he announces the guys that he signed away, which to be honest, are mostly the second tier guys. I don't really give a shit about bodybuilding about anybody else does listening to this. But if you do, it was the second tier of guys like Mike Christian who got like a $250,000 deal guaranteed to jump. And it obviously does not work out well. Spo- you know, spoiler alert, the WBF does not make more money than the WWF. No. Uh, we will be offering overall conclusions to this lovely three-part podcast series naturally at the end. But I just wanted to say this now. The slaughter issue, the steroid issue... Obviously, two big black eyes for the company by 1991, as you mentioned. The slaughter issue, 
could have easily been addressed. You just don't do it or you nix it before the war. But to me, the steroid issue was always going to be the bigger deal and always going to harm the WWF more. Even if Vince doesn't do an Iraqi sympathizer gimmick or even a bodybuilding federation, obviously neither helps his cause, the issue of steroids was always going to bite him in the ass because it was not realistic that he was going to take any drastic action against steroids until Zahorian went up the river. Yeah, so, and again, we'll come back to that at the end. I think that feels like a, a good point to, to leave that for now, because obviously we're going to wrap this up in a nice little mm-hmm. bow at the end. Um, we will obviously talk about some things that were going on elsewhere on the card, moving away from bodybuilding and the main event scene. Uh, after SummerSlam, they do an angle. They started off with the boss man... And they, they, they previously had uh, Bobby Heenan doing promos insulting the boss man's mother. I think Rude jumps on this as well uh, when Rude's still in the company. And it ends with an angle where boss man handcuffs Bobby Heenan to the guardrail for like one of, one of the TV shows. And he's just out there for several matches, begging and pleading for someone to go and get Rude. Yeah, uh, Power and Glory come out and kind of try to help. But Slick in kind of a neat little bit. It's like, hey man, I gotta manage my team. I can't necessarily be paying attention to you. And then Tugboat does... I think have his career highlight when he does the nana nana boo boo face to Heenan <laughs> where he acts like he's going to help him and does it. And it actually gets a bit of a pop. Uh, so this boss man rude deal seemed like he was getting off to a pretty hard uh, or hot start on promos, but, <laughs> but Rick rude ends up quitting the WWF instead. Oops. Uh, yeah. Rude and McMahon have been at odds since the two had problems when Rick Rude had the tricep injury that we talked about on part two and missed a couple of weeks of main events with the Warrior. Uh, when Rude was out injured, they had continued to advertise Rude in those spots and Rude wanted main event pay for the weeks that he missed since they advertised his name. His name drew the houses. His program drew the houses. He felt that he deserved the money. And Vince said, no, because you weren't there. Uh, by the following week, the word was out that Rude had actually gone from the promotion. Uh, at the TV taping this past week, says Meltzer, they switched the feud to Bobby Heenan, and on the October 27th Cindy's, there was an interview with Jack Tunney saying Rude was suspended for his remarks about the boss man's mother, and that uh, it would be Heenan taking his place in all upcoming uh, events. But Rude was also scheduled uh, to take Haku's place uh, at Survivor Series in the, in the, in the match with the uh, Hogan's team against Earthquake's team. Rude was kept under contract. He wasn't fired, but he was officially suspended until the contract expired the following year. So the end of Rude in the WWF based on not being paid. And he was clearly correct in this issue with Vince. I mean, he's being advertised. And yeah, Warrior Rude didn't draw that great, but whatever it drew, if your name's being advertised, you deserve some sort of financial compensation, even if you're not there. Because the, yeah. the people who are showing up don't know you're not there until they get there. So, <laughs> uh, you, you know, did he ever recoup any of that money? I don't believe he did. And not only did he not recoup any of the money, but actually after he quit, they continued to advertise his name on the house shows against the boss man until they do the tourney announcements. Good grief. So they knew, they knew that he was gone and they just kept on plugging his name. Yeah. And you talk about how he's under contract for another year. He, of course, ends up going to WCW, uh, was the WCW Halloween Phantom at Halloween Havoc 91, which was kind of a silly idea. But when he unmasks, it's freaking great with Paul Lee, and he has a very successful two-and-a-half-year run there. He sure does. Uh, you, you talked about, again, Haku replaces him in the Survivor Series match. Uh, despite losing the Rude feud, or Rude isn't, you know, his opponent, I think Bossman ends up kind of being just fine. 
with the whole going through the Heenan family deal and Mr. Perfect being his ultimate target once Perfect regains the IC title. Yeah, I agree. But Bossman is, as, as we said in part one, ends up doing about as well relative to the position he's given as anyone all year. Bossman seems to just come off hot no matter what he's involved in. And even this, when he's like, you say he's going through the Heenan family to get to Perfect, not exactly kill Bill in terms of his path to Perfect. He's only got like two guys to go through here. So Haku and Barbarian are the only other members of the family. Yeah, and I think they were doing ball and chain matches with Heenan around the loop. <laughs> this this actually just reminded me, this this leads to one great promo where after Jack Tunney makes his announcement, they go to Heenan, who does a, a crying and begging and pleading <laughs> promo to the boss man, apologizing for everything he said, which is great in itself. And then they show the unedited version where he, he just is begging and crying and pleading. And then it shows that after he's finished and he thinks the camera's off, he just drops it and walks off like he couldn't give a shit less. <laughs> That is great. And he did kind of, well, he didn't do, they didn't do the aftermath part, but uh, on that main event show, Boss Man's chasing him, and he comes upon Gene Okerlund, <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he, like, grabs, he's like, Gene, please, you gotta help me. And, like, Gene Okerlund is just giving him this great look, like, I'm not gonna fucking help you, pal. <laughs> ah, tremendous. Now, the, the, actually, one of the other big angles that they shoot after SummerSlam before Survivor Series, and to be honest, it's one of the highlights of this period of time, maybe the highlight for some people, is Rick Martel, finally, after months of vignettes with arrogance, sprays Jake Roberts in the eyes, which I think he'd actually done to Dusty in, like, May or June. Um, but here it had been threatened to blind Jake, so uh, this is probably the, one of the hottest things that they've actually got going into the Survivor Series, funnily enough. Yeah, and I like that you brought that up, because I thought I remember that, too, that there were some matches where Martel got disqualified for spraying arrogance at his opponent, and it wasn't yep. considered this life-altering thing it was here with Jake. Um, but yeah, this was one of the hotter fall programs. I think compared to like Dusty and DiBiase and certainly Nikolai and Slaughter, this was the hot upper mid-card feud of the fall of 1990. Uh, going back to part two, of this podcast series, our discussion that we had about Jake possibly turning heel uh, in right after WrestleMania and, and maybe feuding with Hogan or Warrior. Who else do you think could have filled this spot feuding with Martel? Because Jake really made this angle work. Jake's the guy that made it work. The only other guy I could come up with who might be able to play it off uh, is Piper because Piper's got that kind of thing where he can play off the realism a little bit but I don't, even then I'm not sure that he wouldn't have gone completely over the top hammy with it um, mm -hmm. so I'd be, I'd be inclined to say that Jake is the guy to do this 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 feud with yeah I mean I think the whole thing with him just selling the eye injury and like asking the fans to show him the way was just really good and a lesser baby face would not have been able to make that work as well. And Rick Martel did some really good heel work during this time period, especially at the Survivor Series, constantly cheap shotting Jake in that match, the Vipers versus the Visionaries, which I think is one of the best team name matches in the it history is. of the show. Yeah. And the Visionaries were the first full team to ever survive a Survivor Series match, by the way, a little meaningless factoid there. Deserved it for the name. Yes, so it was Martel, the warlord, and the great power and glory. Who <laughs> you better you better, if you didn't have enough power and glory talk in rest, in a part two. By God, folks, we're going to give it to you here again. Um, one little bit I really liked about this feud, Liam, is, and this is the kind of detail that they would never do today. I don't think 
not to be that guy, but I don't think they do this today, is the weeks leading up to the angle where Martell shoots Jake with the arrogance of the eyes, Martell had regularly been appearing on the Brother Love show, showing off arrogance, kind of like spraying it in the air while Brother Love was like, oh my God, it smells so great. So it gave Martell a purpose to be out at the Brother Love show when Jake comes out. And it felt like a more organic way to start a feud rather than if Rick Martell just came out with for some odd reason to have, you know, an issue with Jake. Yeah, I agree. And it's one of those things you can kind of see them working backwards from the end game. Okay, well, we need to get an angle where Martel's going to spray Jake in the eyes. Well, how are we going to do it? Well, we'll do it on the Brother Love show. Well, why is Martel out there? Well, we can we can backtrack and we can have it. Because it's almost like he's like a pseudo sponsor of the Brother Love show with his arrogance. Yes. Just walking around, just spraying it like you say. And he's just kind of hanging around, not really doing anything. He's just there. But then when the time comes for Jake to come out and, uh, and, and Martel starts trying to spray Damien. Yeah. That's kind of and what then, sets it up. And Jake, again, the way he sold it when he gets sprayed in the eyes was awesome. Oh, yeah. And we should mention the follow-up Brother Love show where Martel, again, doing great heel work. He's like, how many fingers am I holding up? And he slaps Jake, who's like blinded <laughs> still. And then Jake grabs Brother Love and DDTs him. That was good. It's good. And the glasses come off. And it's just like, yeah. oh, my God. And, and, and hey, maybe Roddy Piper, were we too hard on him at the beginning? Because I've got some more praise for his commentary. He has that great reaction. Whoa! When like he looks at his eye. It, it, was, it was pretty cool. As silly as that blindfold match was at WrestleMania, and I know a lot of people like to make fun of it, the live crowd was into it. And Bobby Heenan was freaking <laughs> hilarious on commentary. The honor system. Yeah, the honor. Oh, yes, I think Martel should get to take the hood off, close his eyes, and work on the honor system. That is incredible, <laughs> folks. I'm going to say something that I don't care if it makes me uncool in some circles. Being around, I was entertained by the blindfold match. Deal with it. Deal with it. Jake pointing, trying to get again follow you again. What based on that promo? Show me the way, and I'll go. And that's it. Plays into that match. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't work in 2020, but it worked in 1991. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't deserve a ton of... Again, the build-up to this feud, it was it was good. This worked. And Martel's like in the best shape I ever saw him in the WWF in this kind of three-month run. He's, he was in he was in blinding shape. Uh, he was jacked, yes. Yes, he was. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 we can see the back from the front. That's when you can always tell the guy's ready for a push. But uh, <laughs> we have now, moving on, uh, some other changes in characters here. A TV taping on October 9th, Demolition... My beloved Demolition, debut their masks. Uh, there was a, there was a five on two beating with uh, them working with the Orient Express, beating down LOD. Apparently, this stemmed from the fact that Vince felt that LOD weren't getting over enough in their first couple of months in the company, feeling that there were too many wrestlers painting their faces. Um, they were very they were very disappointed with the gates for LOD and Warrior versus Demolition. So I guess they figured they were just going to make the masked characters from this point forward. Yeah, that's what I assumed when I read this tidbit and I went back and rewatched the angle, which, quite frankly, I don't remember. You know, I consider myself a bit of a savant of 1986 to 1994 WWF television. This is something I did not remember taking place. Uh, Demolition reunites with Mr. Fuji in this angle, uh, which, you know, again, after like the breakup 
two years earlier. You're right. When you said my beloved demolition and then you had that very just depressed tone in your voice, I echo those sentiments. It just this was the clear downfall of demolition. I assume them getting the masks had to do with that bizarre Vince take that quote too many wrestlers were painting their faces around this time. Yeah, because and we mentioned I think it's in part two where there was a, there was a, a brief period where they were thinking that LOD were not going to be able to paint their face because Vince felt the same way that he didn't want so many guys with painted faces. Yeah, and maybe that's why Warlord and Barbarians looks got changed. Could be a little Could earlier. Uh, by the way, this whole face paint notion from Vince just shows that he was just as idiosyncratic in 1990 as he is today. <laughs> maybe, maybe not as much today, but. That reads like something you would read today. Uh, Vince thinks there's too many guys painting their faces. So this act can't paint their faces anymore. <laughs> uh, by the way, we talked about Gorilla Monsoon always kind of being the conscience of the office sometimes. And like, <laughs> if Gorilla really buried something, you knew that it wasn't long <laughs> for TV. <laughs> or, or it wasn't going to be successful. When the Barbarian... In the summer of 90, debuts the Antlers. He is just vicious on that. Like, Heenan, <laughs> comes, Heenan comes back to the booth, and he just will not stop talking. Monsoon will not stop talking during whatever the next match is. I can't remember. He's like, where did you get those Antlers? He's like, I've never seen anything that stupid in my life. <laughs> so, yeah. Poor Barbie. But, yeah. uh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, that's the end of him getting the push, I guess. Seriously. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you mentioned they wasn't exactly great at cutting promos in the lead up to Survivor Series either. Oh, they were rotten when he's trying to talk. And again, like at that point, because Rude's gone, it's like it's Earthquake, Bravo, Haku, and Barbarian. And you've never been so happy to see John Tentaco promo. Where was Jimmy Hart or Heenan in that deal? Like, yeah, <laughs> why, why, were, why were the four guys who you had decided all needed mouthpieces cutting promos without their mouthpieces? Yeah, a poor, a poor decision. But there uh, you go. Demolition didn't wear the mask at Survivor Series, though, speaking no. of Survivor Series. Yeah, I wanted to get into that because it was funny that they started wearing the masks leading up to the show. And I was thinking, I'm like, they don't wear these at Survivor Series because I remember Axe not even bothering to slick back his hair in what was his final appearance. Couldn't have given a fuck less that night. <laughs> I mean, Axe, I mean, yeah, he, he, he gets eliminated pretty quickly he could have given a shit less about the grand finale match of survival <laughs> give him his payoff and he's you know he's going to japan uh, <laughs> who could also forget the horrible storyline that they kind of started at SummerSlam when they were switching out axe smash and crutch in the two out of three falls match with the heart foundation that demolition quote looks similar well i thought they looked quite similar Outside of the height, the weight, the hair length, the tattoos, the face paint, and then the yeah. working style. Yeah, it wasn't even that hard to tell the part when the masks were on. Like, I remember. <laughs> so, Perfect brings them out for a podium interview with Gene. And I think it was like, they. it must have been the day after that Orient Express deal where they beat down the LOD. Because it, it felt like it was supposed to be this big reveal. They all take their demolition um, helmets off and they're wearing masks. And Gene just goes to the three guys and knowing who they are. So what's the point to put masks on? He like he very clearly says, what do you got to say about Survivor Series, Axe? 
<laughs> kind of kills the point, Gene. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't really know what the point of those masks were. Uh, we'll get into this very shortly. Uh, demolition. Uh, it was over, man. Great run they had, but uh, these were not the, the best of times for X, Smash, and Crush. No, they changed the music as well. And that was just... I mean, the music was like the best part, man. And maybe, again, it was them. Well, we don't want you know them to get over as baby faces anymore. We want to you know just have this generic music play against the... God, that music was awful. Yeah, there is generic dirge. Yeah, it's like, honest to God, I don't mean to turn to hyperbole, maybe the worst entrance music of all time. <laughs> it was just, it was so horrible. It was just this, like, yeah, generic, yeah, just generic, like, ominous-sounding music. Yeah, we have to end this three-part series with that, just to kind of, you know, end things on a high note. Yes. Either that or Common People by Pulp. <laughs> So, elsewhere in the tag team division, while we're kind of bemoaning the fate of Demolition, the Rockers, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty, win the WF Tag Team titles from the Heart Foundation on what? October 30th. Yeah, honestly. At the October 30th, Satellite's main event tapings in Fort Wayne in Indiana. Uh, however, the match never actually airs and the title change is never recognized. And looking through the notes, there's, it's very interesting how things kind of play out because it doesn't happen necessarily for the reason it's given. Obviously, a lot of people talk about the top rope breaking. Bret Hart's talked about that previously. Meltzer and the Observer didn't even mention it as, as a reason for why they changed, the deci- why the decision changed. Um, as we talked about earlier on, a few days after the taping uh, for this show, NBC told the WWF that Satellite's main event for that show was going to be cancelled. Uh, this is the one that ended up being the main event, so they were instead given a one-hour special on November 23rd. So the originally taped show needed to be cut by 30 minutes. Now, at the same time, there was a housekeeping kind of uh, situation, similar to the one we've had recently, where they decided to cut a bunch of guys, and Jim Neidhart was one of the ones who they decided to cut. And they kind of had an idea for him to work in the office um, so that Brett would go solo. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, this ends up changing... Due to something we've talked about, Axe, on part two, Kyle, you mentioned, Axe really ends up kind of inadvertently shaping the way this division goes. Axe and Smash gave notice after they taped the title change uh, that they will be leaving after Survivor Series. They'll be leaving on December the 3rd is the idea. Crush didn't give notice. The company at the time didn't know what they were going to do with him. Axe and Smash were planning on going to Japan after WrestleMania, but the change to being heels, the addition of the masks, the music, being used to get LOD over, and the disappointment of the recent houses sped up the exit of Axe and Smash. With Axe and Smash quitting, the WF was left with an odd number of teams, so they decided to keep Neidhart on and keep the foundation together. Brett was originally earmarked for a big singles push, um, but they needed to find another heel team to kind of balance things. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, but another heel team was clearly needed, and as things kind of turn out, Axe is the only one that goes. Smash stays on. Um, so things kind of don't necessarily need that urgent switch that they were thinking the heart foundation and obviously since they keep Neidhart, the heart foundation keep the belts Woo! is there a lot to digest with the tag team division in the fall oh, of 1990 boy. so you know i was being facetious when you read that the rockers win the wf tag team titles obviously i knew that um it's kind of one of those first internet legends i wanted to know when did you learn about the supposed phantom title change as it's so, known 
in England, we have a magazine, or we did have a magazine, it's no longer in business, called Power Slam. And it was a magazine that had kind of a lot of the insider information that was going on in the Observer. And it'd be, you know, once a month, it'd get published. And it would have, obviously, the, the, the big news of the time, reviews on the shows that were going on, stuff like that. And there'd always be like a little section near the back where it talked about like, you know, like a little did you know type of section. And I remember it being mentioned in there, I think, um, or at least somewhere in Power Slam magazine, that there was actually a time when the Rockers won the tag team titles, but it didn't last. And I think I probably would have read about that in about 95 or 96. Yeah, that's kind of when I found about it, too. I don't know if it was a PWI almanac or my early days on the Internet. I just remember finding out about it and that being like one of the first, like, to me at the time, juicy tidbits of wrestling history I learned because of, you know, whether it was the Internet or PWI. I I, I did not know for years that this had happened, this this phantom title change with the Rockers winning it, never airing, and the belts just going back to the hearts. I found it fascinating. Belts are never really talked about the fact that the rope broke in the match, which is always cited as the primary reason why this title change was ixnade. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure that it played some part in it because it ended up being like just a kind of really scrappy match. It's that one of those ones where when the final fall goes down, and this would happen a couple of times, but usually Brett's face and Brett just says, fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, for those who may not know what we're talking about, during this match, which was two out of three falls between the Rockers and Hearts in Fort Wayne, I can't remember if it's the first fall or the second fall, the top rope breaks and falls off, and they just have a hell of a time, the two teams, and these are two of the great teams, obviously, uh, dealing with it. And the match kind of just sucks, and because of all the stuff Leah went through, um, you know, demolition, quitting, but then not quitting, you know, the... Saturday Night's Main Event show being cut from 90 to 60 minutes. The rope break, obviously, it just never ha- it never gets there. And the hearts continue as the champions. Now, Bret Hart singles push in the fall of 90. Let's say that this title change takes place. The Rockers become the tag team champions. What would a Bret singles push have realistically looked like had it started six months earlier than it did? Does he get the type of win that Tornado gets at WrestleMania 7 and they're getting him ready for afterwards, do you think? That's one scenario. The other one is that they just speed up everything by six months and he wins the Intercontinental title from Brad at WrestleMania 7, or from Perfect at WrestleMania 7. Yeah, that's that's, that's also a possibility. I guess I was thinking about Bossman's thing had kind of started around the same time, but they could have they blown that off at the Rumble if they needed. Or Bossman could have just beat up Bobby Heenan in a quick squash. I mean, because he doesn't, it's kind of a deal where, you know, all right, well, Bossman lost Rude. We want him to save face as the baby face in the program, but he doesn't go over. He doesn't win the Intercontinental title. So to me, if you actually have like another a guy you want to give the Intercontinental title to, it kind of slides in nicely and Bossman can just, you know, win the feud against the Heenan family some other way. Yeah, because when you think about it, if, if the goal was from to go through the Heenan family to get to perfect anyway, it's curious they did Boston and Perfect at that main event in November. Yeah, and it was not an intercut again because the title change hadn't aired. So yeah, I think it was just, you know, when all these things kind of fall into place, um, WrestleMania kind of falls into place. But this was like yeah. I mean, man, there's so many moving pieces 
here with this title change. And there's even more we're going to get into uh, with the specific teams that remained in the division. But uh, question, if the rope doesn't break in the Hearts-Rockers match, does it still make TV? Hmm. Somehow. It may not be on the main event show, but does it air in syndication? Do they... Although a match of that length airing in syndication would have been rare, certainly. Um, I mean, maybe it's just a two-match main event. Maybe it's just Warrior DiBiase and then the tag title change. You know, I find it interesting because it kind of depends on what really, underneath all of this, is actually the primary reason why they didn't do it. Because even if the rope broke, there's nothing stopping them from taping it again. If if, if 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 they're hell bound determined to go that direction because the rope broke, you think they'd just do a do over on another taping. That's a very good point. Uh, we, be, be, I have a lot to talk about with the tag division. Let's just kind of uh, throw it all out there and talk about the heat. You mentioned the heel side of the tag division needed some additions. Obviously, a major one did come into the fold. Let's talk about that first, and then we'll go big long-term picture with the WF tag division. Yeah, so Demolition is obviously, for a while, it looks like they're going to be out the door. Rhythm and Blues ends up kind of hitting uh, the bricks as well, as Valentine and Honky are two of the guys earmarked for the exit of the promotion. So there's a feeling that the heel side lacks depth, and the Nasty Boys gave notes to WCW, which is why they ran away from the Steiners twice at the, uh, the November Clash, that they'll be heading to the WWF ultimately to work a program with the LOD that was planned from the very beginning. Uh, Jim Hurd offered them both uh, three-year guaranteed contracts for 156000 a year, three grand a week, and the Nasties turned it down to go for the WWF. That doesn't do a lot for the perception of WCW, does it? It does not, I mean, no. Because, I mean, it's funny because the Nasties have that red-hot match that a lot of people like and deservingly so with the Steiners at Halloween Havoc. It's a great match. But they're not locked into any kind of long-term deal. The Nasties, I think, raise their profile even in defeat. And Vince comes in and scoops them up. Yeah. WCW, this is obviously during the reign of Ole Anderson. Ole was close to being turfed out finally here. But it's interesting that WCW didn't offer a single contract to anyone since February of 1990. Wow! The Nasties... Obviously, you came in after, and there was a litany. You look at those shows that that uh, the Oli books. It's just a lit. It's like a revolving door of useless fucking people between guys like you know at that point the Big Cat, the Motor City Madman, Night Stalker, <laughs> who goes on to be Adam Bomb, Maximum Overdrive, these <laughs> Magnum Force, you know the Master Blasters. All these guys who are just you know greener than a leprechaun's dick at this point yeah. just being <laughs> shoved shoved on television and. None of them get offered a deal. It's actually, I think it's November when Stan Hansen finally gets offered a deal that I don't think he takes. But that was the first one since February. Clash 11, 12, and 13, all poop. (laughs) They're very bad. Um, One last tidbit on the heel side, if I may jump in just before I do, is with the Orient Express, we get uh, the masked Kato, who is Paul Diamond, replacing Akio Sato in that particular. Uh, team. Yes, Sato, for anyone that cares, ends up going on to be the uh, WWF liaison to Japan uh, because SWS is uh, is planned and coming around the corner in 1991. So he's kind of out of the ring. 
Paul Diamond, who'd obviously teamed with Pat Tanaka previously, is bad company, gets brought in under a mask, and this is an improvement. Yes, they give us that great tag match against the Rockers at the 91 Rumble. Uh, so yeah, Axe left for New Japan. Jack Tunney had that bizarre uh, vignette where, he, or whatever you want to call it, promo, you know, where he says there can only be two members of Demolition now, essentially like firing one. He's, he basically gives Demolition this ultimatum, well, you got to fire somebody. And since Axe was gone or leaving, um, he was the odd man out. And the team continued smash and crush managed by Mr. Fuji and by God, was that bad? Ugh, yeah. So, all right. I have some thoughts, as you might have guessed, on this tag division and where it should have gone, how it should have worked out. Again, it's easy for some jackass on a podcast to talk about this 30 years later, but I think a lot of this makes sense, uh, even if you view it through 1990 goggles. So, initially, I want to point out, I was confused by Meltzer's reporting of the face-heel face team imbalance that you brought up. There were four face teams and four heel teams at Survivor Series, obviously. So if the Devils quit and the Hearts get broken up, I'm thinking to myself, there's no imbalance. It's three per side. What's he talking about? But I forgot, and you mentioned this, the plight of Rhythm and Blues. Yes. They, okay, so they work the houses against the Hearts when the Hearts first become champions. Terrible first opponent for the Heart Foundation, by the way. Rhythm, <laughs> oh, and, Blue, yeah. Rhythm and Blues is just... Dog shit. I mean, one of the worst. I mean, <laughs> even by this era's standards of tag team, just awful. But they were planning a breakup, I guess, for a while where Valentine was going to be the face. But then you get this cup of coffee from Honky as a commentator, and he quits uh, on Boxing Day, you noted. Uh, very. That's the day after Christmas uh, for you, you uh, the rest of you here in America. Um, and... I'll talk about Greg Valentine in a little bit, what he does, because I found it fascinating. Uh, I was reminded because of the Herb Abrams documentary that yes. just aired. It actually rang a bell. But I'm reading all this stuff about plans for the tag division, all these moving pieces, and there is one team name that is not being mentioned. I keep wondering, what about them, Liam? And you know who it is. <laughs> Power and Glory! <laughs> A great duo who who did not get their fair shake here at the end no. of 1990. Okay, so they looked like studs at SummerSlam. We talked about this. The one-foot pin on Marty Jannetty from Roma. Oh, yeah. They survive their match at Survivor Series. Folks, I'm just going to tell you right now, I think Power and Glory should have beaten the Hart Foundation uh, for the titles in the fall of 1990. I couldn't agree more. When you look at the balance of things... I think that you need, since they were hot, LOD needs something. It's like every babyface team benefits from heel champions, it feels like at this point. Rockers coming back to work with them after SummerSlam with, with Sean's knee. Yes. That felt, like it, that, that felt like it could have had something. LOD going through demolition to, to try and get to power and glory feels like that, that, that there's something there too. I It's surprising, and I wonder if it goes back to that note that we read very early on in part two where the idea originally was for them to be a low-level team. And I don't know if they just had, they, they kind of placed them in their minds that that's what they were. But it almost seems going forward that, like, there just seems to be a point where they just stop progressing. Yeah, and it's kind of, you know, as we go into 91, you know, they 
do feud with the LOD a little bit. They cost the LOD a shot in that bad. I know, I realize I'm jumping way ahead uh, to stuff we're not really going to talk about. But, you know, they they feud, they cost LOD a title shot in a tag team battle royal. They work LOD at Mania 7. And they just get squashed in a minute. Yeah. And that's basically it. They just become a low-level team from that point on. Um, the way the Rockers had been booked throughout much of 1990... Them winning the titles, just the notion of them beating the Hearts in Fort Wayne, seems very out of the blue. Yeah, like it, I, I, I'm struggling even now to come up with the logistics behind it because you just kind of sacrifice them to Power and Glory, and unless you were thinking that you know Power and Glory chased them as champions after the number they'd done on them, but that seems to be a dynamic that works better the other way around to me. So yes. I, I, Going straight to another babyface team while you've got LOD? I don't know. I don't know if I'd have done that. Yeah, because I think at this point, and it's, again, easy to say with 30 years of hindsight, but even as a kid, I was pretty sure I was of this opinion, you knew LOD would get the titles at some point. They were brought in. You know, yes, it was a little disappointing. They were not the same team they were working for Crockett, but still, you know... Kids of our age liked them, and I think we all knew they'd eventually get the title. So to me, the trajectory of the belts, hearts to nasties to LOD that took place over the course of a year, SummerSlam to SummerSlam, 90 to 91, was very boring. Yeah. And, and I would have done it. Power and Glory wins it in the fall, so Brett goes single. You, you just end the Heart Foundation in the fall here. Power Glory can then lose to the LOD at Mania. Probably not a squash, <laughs> but they lose to LOD. And the Nasties, you can build the Nasties up for their first couple months. Instead of them coming and just winning the titles at WrestleMania, they can be built up and be the LOD's challengers over the summer because that was a dynamic that really sucked in the summer of 91 where the LOD was chasing the Nasties. I mean, Ray Charles could have seen that a title change was coming there. <laughs> Right? I mean, nobody bought that the Nasties were going to retain in that match. So, yeah, I just think that it's really funny. The tag team division in the WWF really took a hit over the next year. And I, I think it really all stems from Power and Glory not getting a nice title run. <laughs> it's, it's, damn it, it's down to Roman Herc not getting their due. When, yeah. when Demolition Go, it's so funny because the WWF tag team division for the previous three years had been pretty stellar. You know, and th- this is kind of the breaking point for the tag team division where it feels like there's a massive lack of focus and a lack of depth and energy in this division. Like you say, when the belts go to the Nasties, as a, as a sidebar, it's kind of surprising in retrospect that the Nasties came in as the Nasty Boys with the same gear and everything they just had in the NWA. That's not something that really happened very often, it seems. But no, with that not. said... Yeah, and it's just they, they they come in and they win the belts. They go over the WWS teams, the Heart Foundation. That's another curious little thing. All for this LOD feud where, again, it feels to me like give it some energy. Give the belts to LOD. Well, give the belts to Power and Glory with a view to get it to LOD. They can do a series. You've got the Nasties that you can warm up by having them work with the Rockers beforehand. Since the Rockers yes. never really were planned for anything big after this. So this is really the only point this this phantom title change, and maybe that's why it's got some alert to it too, is the fact that the Rockers never really were earmarked to be the top team at any other point before or after. Yeah, and you know, today the notion that a team would be as good as the Rockers and never have the tag team titles is like insane. Yeah. You know, I mean it's just because any team that means anything 
gets at least one tag team title run, right, in the modern times. So the fact that the Rockers, who in terms of a purely in-ring perspective, they may not have been presented as one of the top teams, but from an in-ring perspective, they certainly are one of the greatest teams in company history. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't uh, couldn't agree more. Any other thoughts you have on the tag team titles here before we move on? No. If I would have built, I'll tell you what, people ask me all the time. If you could have built a time machine, what would you go back and change? The answer is very clear. <laughs> power and glory, tag team champions, 1990. First thing I would change. Give give Neidhart that powerplex and get him out of here. Yes, and that's the thing. He can do a clean job. He's leaving. Exactly. Brett's going on to bigger things. Speaking mm-hmm. of uh, changes in championships, by the way, on November 19th, as you mentioned, they taped it before Survivor Series aired afterwards. Mr. Perfect gets the Intercontinental title back off Kerry Von Erich after interference from Ted DiBiase, which I remember when I saw that, that doesn't go anywhere. No, it doesn't. And DiBiase seemed to have his hand in a lot of cookie jars at yeah. the end of 1990. He's got the feud with Dusty that hasn't wrapped up yet. He does this thing with Carrie that goes on a couple weeks and then they're building the eventual Virgil baby face turn. Yeah. Um, I looked it up. Carrie and DiBiase eventually did work a pretty brief house show program in early 91, but that's it because, you know, once the Virgil angle happens, then, you know, that's DiBiase's main focus on TV. Uh, you had mentioned earlier, Carrie's only major IC title defense on TV was against Haku at that, Hideous October Saturday Night's event. We can't say enough horrible things about that particular broadcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are also right what you said in part two. Carrie Von Eric's promos. <laughs> they're rough, aren't they, man? Oh, they're bad. <laughs> I mean, like, from the start, it just seems like he's, like, struggling to remember what he's going to say. And, like, you know, promos weren't scripted like they are today. But... <laughs> It's just like, you know, they gave him some bullet points, and you can just, like, look in his eyes. He's struggling to remember those bullet points. The title run, although the reality is it lasted a month shorter than, you know, it appeared on television, it felt like it went longer than it needed to. Yeah, which is kind of funny, because I felt like they kind of... It felt like they needed someone like Von Eric in that kind of position, that strong, that kind of baby yeah. face in the middle that people can really get behind. And I think they kind of knew it too. And the, I guess maybe it speaks to just how bad they felt he was in his role. Because I know they were disappointed in him as a performer when he came back in the ring. And then when he starts doing those promos, it's like he's just trying to, he's, just, he's working his hardest to churn out the most garden variety verbiage <laughs> he possibly can. Like when we finally get in the ring, I will beat you. And it's like, fucking Jesus. Like, yeah. That's the best. They, they, they probably did multiple takes to get that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. It's like if I, like, asked my wife, bless her soul, by the way, gave her toe last week for this, so this podcast could be re- released. I'd like to dedicate this week's show to her. But uh, if you, like, if I asked my wife to, like, cut a pro wrestling promo, almost, and, like, she doesn't, like, know anything <laughs> about wrestling, I was like, you know, if I was like, Cammy, cut a wrestling promo, and she'd be like, ah, and she'd be like, uh, I'm gonna beat you, you know, like, that's what I would expect. For those who do not remember Carrie and DiBiase, by the way, I just wanted to offer one final tidbit on this. Carrie had come to the rescue of Dustin Rhodes on a Brother Love show from DiBiase and Virgil the week prior to DiBiase uh, interfering on Perfect's behalf in the title change. I can only assume that they didn't want to bury Carrie in the loss and wanted to put a little heat on him, even if they didn't intend for him and DiBiase to go anywhere. 
Yeah, I mean, the fact that they don't go in there with it, it's kind of, this is kind of the point now where you can tell that they've really kind of just given up on the idea of Tornado as like a top three, top four guy. Yeah, and uh, DiBiase, for, if no one has seen the title change, interesting, he buys off Howard Finkel to be the ring announcer. Hmm. Howard Finkel took the money. He did. <laughs> took the money. Rest his soul. Rest, rest his soul, Howard. We miss you, by the way. We do. We do. God, God did I miss hearing his voice, by the way, after, after seeing this year of television. God, he's fucking mm-hmm. great. Yeah. Him, and Je- actually... him and Jesse, you know, just two great voices. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I just watched the uh, replay they did of WrestleMania 3 on FS1. And his announcement of Steamboat as the new Intercontinental <sighs> Champion still sends chills uh, up your spine. You know, I know a lot of people have talked about that, that, you know, a title change wasn't really a title change until you heard Howard say, eh, no! But that Ricky Steamboat one, man, I, I, maybe it's because it's like the first major title change I saw as a kid. Um, or first babyface title change, I should see, say. Um, it, that just one always sticks in my mind. Yeah, no, it's it, with, with the crowd going crazy and that voice echoing throughout the, the, the Silverdome, man, it's fantastic. And, uh, and yeah, again, took the cash, but so would I, frankly. So. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that was never followed up on, by the way. It was just like Howard Finkel took cash one week to let T- Teddy Biasi interfere. And, you know, he just went back to being a commentator. There was no, Jack Tunney did no sort of investigation at all on it. It was just like, <laughs> yeah, Howard took the cash. He let DiBiase, you know, <laughs> cause a title change, but no biggie. Well, Tunney's not exactly one to talk. Yeah, J- old Jack on the take, Tunney. <laughs> yeah, what's he going to cry about Finkel for, you know? Yeah. Anyway, elsewhere in the promotion, uh, obviously that's kind of the, the lay line with the championships, but there were some uh, some imports and exports here from the WWF. The first major one of this period, if you can call it a major one, Tony Atlas coming in as a prelim <laughs> babyface, Saba Simba, getting back to his roots, according to Vince McMahon, uh, as well as some talk of David Boy Smith going back to the WWF. Uh, Bad News Brown uh, is either fired or quit, but ends up heading to Japan, so Bad News out, Davey in, Atlas in. What a rough go poor Tony Atlas had at Sama Simba. First, you have what we mentioned in part two. We just randomly got into it. Uh, Roddy Piper shitting on the debut, doing the That's Tony Atlas routine on commentary. One of the most incredible things to ever air on WWF television. An announcer just unmercifully burying a gimmick in its first time out. Then, after that, Sama Simba's feud was set to be with Akeem over who was the real African of the WWF. Jesus Christ. <laughs> which, which Jesus I'm, Christ. Which, I'm going to be honest, okay? <laughs> I'm going to admit it. I don't care. <laughs> Say what you will about me. That's fucking amusing. <laughs> <laughs> like, those promos where Akeem was claiming that he was the real African was just like, I'm just like, how can these people... Like, live with themselves doing this. Like, how are the people that produce those inset promos not just laughing on their ass, like, pounding the floor? Uh, but that that feud, it was said to be, you know, Simba's maybe one and only feud. But Akeem quits, sick of life on the road. Yep, he's done. So Simba does pretty much nothing. Yeah, and we should not forget about another crappy baby face that comes in around the same time as Saba Simba. Battle Cat. Yeah, who who gets like debuted in a squash match where he was fifty fifty with the job guy? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you, 
You know what was so it was Brady Boone that played the original Battle Cat, and again, Gorilla Monsoon uh, was having none of Battle Cat. <laughs> no, he wasn't he a was, fan of the mask. No, he he kept saying oh, this Battle Cat's pretty interesting, huh? <laughs> like, and, and, and what he was really saying is this Battle Cat fucking blows, huh? Yeah. But, but what was funny about it is it was played by Brady Boone, unfortunately. But that debut was against Bob Bradley, and Bob Bradley would eventually work his Battle Cat a little bit. Huh? Yeah, that, that. That, that's your that's your Battle Cat trivia there. So uh, huh. now again, I don't know who lasted shorter, Saba Simba or Battle Cat. I think it was Battle Cat because Simba at least was in the '91 Rumble. But um, yeah, very very. <laughs> Very bad stuff. You know, there was a string of just bad baby faces debuting around this time. Davey Boy Smith being the exception when he debuts on the October 27th Superstars. Shane Douglas, I remember thinking he was kind of a tool when I was a kid. I, probably, <laughs> I, I didn't probably use the term tool, but, you know, whatever, you know, 10-year-old Kyle would have said, that's what I was thinking. And it kind of speaks to the big picture again we're talking about with WWF. I remember with my brother you know, who was younger than me, we would always like for months just rip on Saba Simba and Battle Cat and Shane Douglas. We'd be like, remember that? Like hideous character. And it's not good when you got that many misses if you're WWF. Yeah, it's as awesome your new character. Another. Yeah, it's yeah. one after another. Because look, there have been misses before, let's be honest. Okay. I mean, I'm sure if we we're doing a nineteen eighty six podcast, we'd have some fun with the rebel Dick Slater. Oh, what God. Head-scratching baby faces of all time. <laughs> but, you know, for every Dick Slater in 1986, there were three hits. Here, it seemed like the ratio was reversed. You're getting, like, these three misses and maybe one hit. So, um, yeah, kind of e- even tough times on the undercard for WWF in 1990. Yeah, they were they were looking for guys. I mean, they, I know Scotty the Body got a tryout during this time as well. Obviously, you go on to be Raven. He gets a tryout. They don't pick him up. Think he's too small. I think is the rap that he gets because he was a heel at the time. Shane Douglas also makes the 1991 Royal Rumble and kind of a strange run he has here, where he just kind of he's just underneath. He gets in the Rumble, then he goes shortly afterwards. Doesn't really do anything other than I think the the, the most notable part of him during this period is like we said, replacing Shawn Michaels when he had the knee injury on the house shows. That's it. Yeah, and teaming with teaming with Marty. Yeah. Shane constantly got the what a nice young man treatment. From mm. Gorilla and Piper, you know, which was a polite way of saying, yeah, we don't really know what to say. No personality. He's not long <laughs> for this promotion. No, no. But they do have one hit, like you say here, which is Mean Mark, uh, who gets signed from WCW, also, of course, not under a contract, uh, gets a role in Suburban Commando after SummerSlam, which is Hogan's new hit film that's going to be coming out uh, shortly after. Again, John Nord was originally scheduled for the role. Uh, a man who was previ- previously earmarked for Crush suggested somebody else for it, and this time his, uh, he doesn't get his SAG card because he offers it to uh, Mark Calloway instead. Yeah, and uh, before we get to a just absolute all-time hoot with Suburban Commando, I just wanted to read a little bit of this tidbit that Bruce, because I think it's pertinent because Bruce obviously worked with Taker a lot initially being his manager, uh, some stuff he said on The Undertaker in that kayfabe commentary. Said the character was supposed to be the opposite of brother love. White suit, you know, for brother love. He's preaching love and it's this pure evil wrestler at his side. But this is what was interesting. Bruce said that Heyman called him up. Paul Heyman, obviously, called him up to say that Mark Calloway was available. 
Bruce pitched the idea to Vince, and they set up a meeting the day after WCW pay-per-view where Mean Mark wrestled Lex Luger. That would have been the Great American Bash. Bash. 90. Yeah. Uh, however, Callaway had dislocated his hip, and that match sucked. So Vince lost interest in the idea of signing Mean Mark and canceled the meeting. But a few weeks later, they got Vince and Callaway together. Vince falls in love with them. They had someone sketch up some drawings, and as Vince noted, Callaway looked like an old-time Undertaker. There you go. There it is. And we were off and running, yeah. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, Heyman doing his company a service. (laughs) Hey, hey, competition. (laughs) Meet Marcus. This guy I'm managing is available. Do you want to take him? I'd probably have to question the source here in terms of like, if I was Vince and the guy who was working with this guy was trying to get rid of him, I probably wouldn't be too eager either. Yeah, and I wouldn't have been eager, fairness, after watching that Lex Luger Mean Mark match at Great American Bash. But ended with, Mean Mark ended with, was... ended with a clothesline, Kyle. That's right. One of the <laughs> weakest finishes in any like major title match on pay-per-view ever. Yeah. But apparently he was hurt, Mean Mark, so yeah, we'll give him a, a pass. Indeed. Now, you mentioned the note that we have about Suburban Commando. There was apparently an effeminate character, and I've seen this, this film once when I was a kid, and I don't remember it in detail. So if this is inaccurate in any way, then feel free to correct me. But apparently there was set to be an effeminate character called Adrian Belts. Uh, B-E-L-T-Z, or Z for you in America. Uh, <laughs> the role was offered to Richard Belzer. <laughs> Who was not amused with the fact that he was supposed to portray an effeminate character with a name very a surname very similar to his own uh, in a Hogan movie? Yes, and for those of some balls, yeah, is this real? I mean, for for those who are unclear on why Liam and I are laughing so hard. Uh, maybe we shouldn't be laughing so hard. Richard Belzer was injured by Hulk Hogan on his own talk show in the build-up to WrestleMania 1, taking a front face lock and passing out. Of course, uh, we were reminded of that at WrestleMania 6 when Jesse Ventura uh, uh, pointed out how dangerous Hulk Hogan's front face lock was. Just ask Richard Belzer. (laughs) That one was Jesse. Yeah. Oh, man. Mark Calloway has been signed by the WF and is going to get a super push and work with Hogan. So that was in the uh, in the plans immediately. Yeah, and it d- doesn't happen for another year until no. Survivor Series 91. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, it, it was very clear, though, watching the TV, they had big plans for him. And uh, obviously, uh, The Undertaker worked out pretty well in the WWF. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, now... With that said, we've talked before about the house cleaning that took place in mid-October. Several personnel changes being talked about. The people who were considered on the chopping block, not all of these guys went, but most of them did. Jimmy Snooker, Jim Powers, Boris Zukov, Nikolai Volkov, who they just spent the summer trying to build up as a baby face. Black Bart, Pez Watley, Jim Brunzel, Paul Diamond, who obviously got to stay as Kato, uh, Coco Beware, Ron Garvin, Honky Tonk Man, Greg Valentine, and Jim Neidhart, as well as the genius, which caused some heat with Randy Savage. Um, but yes, yeah, some of those stayed. Obviously, we mentioned Neidhart ended up being kept on. Uh, Honky kind of gets a brief stay of execution as a commentator, but that doesn't last very long. Valentine is taken off contract. Yes, and goes to work for Herb Abrams. Yeah. 
uh, one of the those <laughs> UWF shows that were just immortalized by Dark Side of the Ring. Okay, I was reading and peeking ahead to some early 1991 observers, and I, you know, for whatever reason, I wanted to read Dave's review of of the night of the Rumble. In his review, Meltzer claims that Valentine staying in the match for 40-plus minutes was a rib for him working the Herb Abrams show. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. It, I think it was more, we're going to try to get Valentine. I always took it as, well, Greg's going to be a face, so we kind of want to you know, have him be in a match a long time. Yeah, you kind of think that. I remember... Just to throw a, uh, a nod to another audio show of the past, Live Audio Wrestling. Honky Tonk Man did an interview in like 2000. This is when he was going on his, uh, his initial kick of being a rather kind of controversial <laughs> guest on some of these shows. He would just fire some shots at people. And, uh, but I remember Honky mentioning that back during this time, anytime anyone was in the Rumble for a long time, it was considered a rib on them. Yeah, that's interesting, because Martell also was in that Rumble for a really long time, and I just, again, assumed they were trying to get him over as a heel. Yeah. So I had heard that rib before, but it, it was it was funny that uh, Meltzer was trying to equate it with Valentine having his cup of coffee uh, for Herb Abrams, and I think it was November. Uh, Jimmy Snuka gets to stay, obviously gets squashed by The Undertaker at WrestleMania. Uh, Volkoff, did he get the axe? Because I don't remember him working in 1991 much. I know he's a replacement for, I think, Marty Jannetty at the 92 Rumble. He gets soundly booed as a baby face. <laughs> complete, complete, Kyle, with one of our Gorilla Monsoon favorites of, well, he didn't last long, did he? <laughs> no, no. And, and he comes out and uh, Monsoon goes, eh, tough time over there for those Lithuanians right now. And Bobby Heaney goes, who cares? <laughs> Oh, man, they were on fire on that show. Yeah, and we mentioned earlier Boris Zukov replaced Akeem at Survivor Series when Akeem quit. So Boris got a bit of a stay of execution as well, to use your terminology. I think he also, though, uh, eventually was not long for the promotion. Um, Honky Tonk, we mentioned, was gone. He and Valentine were set to feud. Uh, Rhythm and Blues exploding, obviously, would have been much more along the lines of the Bolsheviks than the Mega Powers. So... uh, (laughs) I'm just yeah, looking at so, this list. Of, I'm looking at this list of names you got here. What a rogues gallery this is! Oh, just again when the when the highlight of rhythm and blues is at Survivor Series when Greg Valentine goes to the camera on his entrance and does what I can only describe as Vincent Mann's Jim Ross impression. It's that says something because it's a hideous team. They have a hideous run, and when this when it ends, no one cares and no one complains. It's just in the past. What was worse, Rhythm and Blues or Greg Valentine's 1991 run as a babyface? <laughs> again, a shaky couple of years for Greg. Yeah. Um, Ron Garvin, I was shocked he stayed around as long as he did. Because it, what an odd last year he had in the company. He wins that blow-off against Greg Valentine at Royal Rumble 1990 and then immediately just becomes a jobber. Yeah, like, with no mercy, he just lays down for everybody. Yeah, like, I mean, I think he did, like, three stretcher jobs for Earthquake in successive weeks on television. <laughs> like, he loses, I think, to, like, Mr. Perfect on SummerSlam Fever clean as well, I think. Yeah, it was, I mean, man, that last year was rough for for rugged Ronnie Garvin. Yeah, rugged Ronnie. The, the, the door's calling for you. Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, 
A couple of uh, interesting signings here. Ricky Steamboat offered a spot, but noted in the Observer, they want him to lose the name. Ricky <laughs> Steamboat. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was very upsetting. I remember even as a ten, and then you know by the time he debuts and is working an eleven-year-old kid, I was like, why are they not bringing up Ricky Steamboat's past? And it's just like he'd never that, been there before. Yeah, and you know. It's 1990 we're talking about. He'd been NWA world champion just the year prior. And it's not like he was old or long in the tooth or they should want to make people forget about his past. They should make people embrace his past. I One of the most perplexing things uh, ever is Ricky Stevo just being the dragon when he comes in. I just, I, I don't get it. Yeah. I don't like it. Um, he, of course, doesn't last long. He quits. And, uh, you know, has a great debut at the club. You know, the vignettes, so they just show the guy breathing fire. He gets, he gets the new costume here. And, yeah, it's, it's, it seems, even for, by WWF standards, really out of place, considering that this wasn't just NW, uh, an NWA character they're trying to redo. This was their own guy. Like, they, there was potential interest in Ricky Steamboat's past in the company that they could have gone back to. They, they, there, was, there, was, uh, there was equity there that they didn't need to get rid of. This yeah, hurt. I, this seems this seemed the the kind of thing to do when you are specifically trying to make somebody a lower card guy. Yeah, there was that rumor that he was supposed to work with DiBiase in the fall of '91 before he quits. Where with the fire breathing gimmick, when you mentioned that, just it jogged a memory. He was supposed to set DiBiase's money on fire. Right. Yeah, and but you know, obviously that never happened because he leaves. Because he thought yeah. the, he thought rightly so that the dragon <laughs> sucked. <laughs> well, an astute observation that I'm uh, I'm personally inclined to agree with. Yeah, but but while we have a movement in one direction, although you know Steamboat was obviously gone by that point in the NWA, we have a move back. Dusty Rhodes hands in his notice to the WWF in mid-November at the same time that most wrestlers are convinced that Ole Anderson is on his way out as the booker of the NWA at the same time. Uh, people are putting two and two together here. Most WWF wrestlers believe there is a connection between the two. Rhodes will finish up on house shows in late December with a plan being that he'll put over Sergeant Slaughter, uh, which I don't think actually happens in the end. I'm not sure about that. Uh, but he was scheduled to work the Royal Rumble as well. There is no opposition from McMahon and Rhodes leaving, though the last word over the weekend was that Vince was at least talking with Rhodes about offering him some sort of an office position. Uh, there was talk that if Dusty hadn't given notice, it was only a matter of time anyway before the WWF would have been forced to phase him out of active wrestling. Wow, what a last sentence that is. Uh, yeah. do, we think, do we think Dusty was done as an in-ring performer at this time? I'm removed from the time, so I find this kind of hard to answer. In retrospect... I don't necessarily think so, but I wasn't in that mix at that time where I can kind of see why they would think that because, again, he'd had a long, long, long run. And I think that you maybe it's one of those things where they kind of have the opinion, if you've got Dusty, you need to have him at a certain position, otherwise it just doesn't work. And, yeah. if, they're not gonna put him in, and if they're not going to put him in that position anymore, which clearly was really what they were talking about, that's when you've got to get rid of him. Because him just kind of chewing up airspace is is a waste of time. Yeah. Uh, the DiBiase feud is a real stark downturn 
for Dusty Rhodes in the WWF. I want to talk about the narrative that surrounds Dusty Rhodes in the WWF. The first year in the company, like summer of 88, or pardon me, summer of 89 to summer of 90, this notion that he was being humiliated, buried, made to look like a fool, I don't think is necessarily accurate, polka dots aside. Look at who he's working with. Boss man, then Savage. He's getting those guys, like, fresh off Hogan. And he's winning those feuds. I don't know why you'd want to put him in polka dots to, in theory, humiliate him when the plan is that you're actually going to... And this is the thing. It's a credit to Dusty. He gets over yes. really quick. Yeah, and we talked about on part two, you know, as that Savage feud is winding down and his first promo after he loses Sapphire to DiBiase, they're very good promos. They're some of Dusty's best promos in the promotion. So... You know, as the summer's ending, I don't really think there's necessarily this huge warning sign that Dusty Rhodes should be done as an in-ring performer. Now, you bring up the point, well, you know, once he gets drops down to a certain level, you don't want to use him anymore. Because there's no point to use Dusty Rhodes, like, you know, in the same role you would use Rugged Ronnie Garvin, to, to use another name that we just talked about, right? Yeah. So... If they were using him to kind of spice DiBiase back up, I guess then maybe he is done, and there is no point. Um, you and I chatted, obviously, several about a lot of subjects before we went on the air, and with the subject of this Dusty-DiBiase feud, it was clear that Dusty wasn't being made to look strong um, in some of the interactions during this feud. Yeah, so... Dusty, almost right from the off, is just kind of portrayed as <laughs> a bit of a loser. He, he loses the green polka dots, replaces them for red. He wears this big poncho now with a, with a, with a new hat. Um, <laughs> a bit of a change of, of the look for Dusty. And then in these angles, and obviously we get the we get the Dustin Rhodes appearance here as well. The angle, probably the best thing on that show, as a matter of fact, is when DiBiase and Virgil beat the shit out of Dustin in the front row. Uh, that Any blades. And he blades, um, and Dusty goes out to help. But again, it's like, you think it's a natural that Dusty goes out there and starts fighting, and it's going to be red hot, and he doesn't. He just kind of stands over Dustin. This happens a couple of times. The same thing happens when they do that match on television where DiBiase says that Dustin can't go 10 minutes with him. And in the end, DiBiase gets from the Million Dollar Dream, but the time expires. Dusty hits the ring, doesn't really go after DiBiase and Virgil, just kind of hovers over Dustin. It's like, you, you wouldn't have it done this way if you were trying to make the babyface look even halfway competent so there may have been a little self-fulfilling prophecy by the wwf in dusty being done as an in-ring performer is what you're saying i think so and it's it's interesting to note that i did look at the uh the observer from 89 where dusty gets signed by the wwf and even in the early days it was noted that the plan for dusty was to work for a year before becoming a part of an office so i wonder if they had their mental timeline and as soon as he fulfilled it he's like okay well now it's time to steer away because that's what we said was a dusty heel turn realistic in this time period in the wwf i think it would have been worth a go okay i think it would have been, i think it would have been worth a go more than just writing them off the way they did 
I, I would have given it a shot. Considering the lack of depth you've got on that side, I'd have given it a shot. Okay. It's not just something that, you know, like the Bruce Mitchells of the world or maybe even Dave to a lesser extent, like kind of always fantasized about having it in Crockett. And they're like, oh, man, they could have done this. And you think there was actual legs there with Dusty turning heel? I'm not saying that there wasn't for the record. Yeah. No, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting one just because the whole thing of him is the American dream for so long. And as the perennial babyface, it would have been if he's done because when he leaves he gets the edict that when he goes to wcw he gets the job on the basis that he's not a wrestler anymore and that he can't book himself as the top guy in wcw on television now of course he booked himself to pretty much be the, the, the centerpiece as a personality anyway in 1991 for the first half at least he's all over the tv but the edict comes that he's done as a wrestler so since that's kind of the idea dusty was getting on here he was getting up there in years but i think that if he's done then it's kind of a judgment call. Do you try the one last heel turn? Is it the reverse of the Greg Valentine, Nikolai Volkov syndrome <laughs> we talked about previously, where he's had his run as the American dream, and then you just blow it all up one more, you know, the American dream turns heel on Hulk Hogan, who's taken his place or something like that. And you, you, you give it a go, and you see how you know, violent and vicious you can get with a dusty heel turn, even if it's a short-term thing, because when it's done, his time is up. Yeah, I think the fact that he didn't, work at all in the ring when he goes to WCW plays into the narrative that he was done at this point. I'm not saying that he wasn't for the record. I mean, it's not like he was having, doing the best in-ring work of his career in the fall of 1990. No. Far from it. But I think the fact that he goes to WCW and then essentially it's a de facto retire in-ring retirement plays into the narrative. Well, he had nothing left in the ring. Anyway, if the only Anderson situation doesn't play out the way it did where he's on his way out as the booker and that opens up a spot for dusty to jump back what happens with dusty Rhodes? does he take an office job with titan or what i think so dusty's tried to do it when he left end of to try and stop something flawed which bombed he realized it was going to bomb so he jumped to the wf where he had a spot kind of falls through time is kind of taking its toll on that now it's right back to a key place in the nwa if that spot's not there i think he ends up choosing a front office position before he gets jobbed out completely i think his ego would have, would have had a hard time dealing with it yeah i think if you're right given the option of well you can stay on as an in-ring performer but you're going to lose all the time or you can just transition or you can just go to the office i think you're going to take the office if you're dusty Rhodes. with that said on the ego front poor dusty on his way out the door does not lose the sergeant slot from what i could tell but he does do jobs to virgil of all people, Virgil is the guy that jobs him out in less than 90 seconds on the house shows. Um, you can tell, Yeah, and then from watching the TV that following week, you can start to see, as you pointed out, Kyle, the Virgil turn on DBRC that had been rumored for years uh, is finally in the works. That whole angle, watching the television back, really seemed like a bit of a hard right turn where DiBiase started upping his berating of Virgil, and they teased the breakup, didn't it? Like, after Survivor Series, all of a sudden, DiBiase was just, like, really mean to Virgil. It doesn't really seem... It's especially funny, because I wonder... Just, this was just something that came to me when you were talking about the Tornado feud they kind of didn't go with. I wonder if, as soon as Dusty hands in his notice, they just broke away DiBiase from Dusty. They let Virgil be the one to kick the shit out of Dusty instead of continuing the Dusty-DiBiase feud on the house shows. DBRC and Tornado is like a short-term thing, I guess, maybe to just tie them over while they buried Dusty and got Virgil in, in the fans' minds, I suppose, who went to these house shows ready for DBRC. Yeah, that seems kind of like the way it was done. 
Um, you know, in my eyes, I was kind of thinking the Virgil angles maybe necessitated by Dusty leaving, like you said. Uh, regardless of what the thinking was, I want to say this. The Virgil angle was well done, and his face turn at the Rumble is freaking awesome. <laughs> Another reason why the undercard of that show is superb. Yeah, the pop Virgil gets when he knocks DiBiase out with the million-dollar title is legitimately one of the great pops a mid-card act ever receives in the history of pro wrestling. I'm not lying. No, you're not. And again, Roddy Piper does his job well on commentary on that moment, so I'm glad that during uh, the, the course of this podcast, Piper, who, who traditionally does get some slack, and rightly so, for his commentary work, he did have his moments, and I thought that he helped. Yeah, and he ends up being a sort of mentor-slash-coach for Virgil, you know, even accompanying uh, Virgil to the ring at WrestleMania 7. Jacques Rougeau returns as a mounted policeman character. That's the last uh, guy that gets brought in for the year. Yeah, and those vignettes start airing uh, as the year ends, and... It was okay, I guess. It, it was a gimmick that it could be entertaining at times, but you also knew would not be a main event level gimmick. Yeah, and not everyone's going to be a main eventer. I think that's something that wrestling fans need to understand a little bit better in 2020. But, you know, this was very much, um, and we would see it more and more as the 90s continued, at least the first half of the 90s for WWF. Everyone's got to have this kind of over-the-top character. It can't be a subtle character like Jake the Snake. It's got to be, he's a mounted policeman. He's a dragon. He's an alligator man. He works for the IRS. And so <laughs> on and so forth. Yeah. I wonder what TV guy would have to say about the shock stick. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> so that, I think, wraps us up for the, uh, for the guys who came in and left. Uh, throughout 1990. So we have stretched the gamut here on, on, on the main event scene, on the undercard, everything that took place behind the scenes on and off screen. Kyle, we are near the end of our road on 1990. And I know that there is uh, something of a wrap up here that I want to throw to you to our epilogue here, kind of evaluating the year and seeing what happens basically because of everything we've talked about over the course of the last three podcasts as the WWF moves into 1991. Okay. I said this near the beginning of the podcast, but one of the great tidbits, or I think one of the more interesting, not great necessarily, but one of the most interesting tidbits that we uncovered uh, was the shockingly strong number Royal Rumble 91 does uh, on pay-per-view with the Warrior Slaughter title match on top. And I think you've got to credit that title match because the Rumble itself was not yet a big draw. Um, spoiler alert, the 92 Rumble, which I think is one of the, great matches in company history, not only the best Rumble uh, by far ever, but one of the great matches in company history. The buy rate for that show, even with the gimmick of winner getting the world title, falls back down to 1990 levels. There is a clear spike with this 1991 number. Despite yes. everything we've talked about, and it's really interesting. Indeed it is, because who's on top? Yeah, Warrior who has this rep of being a failures world champion, and Sergeant Slaughter, who we kind of alluded to, seemed like this really bad idea as a character. But, but yes, 
Go ahead. Not only does WrestleMania 7 have to be moved from the LA Coliseum to the sports arena, but WrestleMania 7 bombs on pay-per-view doing fewer buys than the Rumble. It's the first of only three times in history, and I'm speaking here in 2020, only three times in history has a Rumble show beaten that same year's WrestleMania in terms of buys. The other two are 97 and 03. Uh, 97, WrestleMania did the lowest number of buys in history. Had a, It is the only WrestleMania of the first uh, 18 that does not have a strong, uh, clear main event build because obviously there was so much happening behind the scenes with Shaw losing his smile and plans getting thrown into disarray. So WrestleMania that year did worse than the Rumble. And then 03, uh, no one has ever been able to explain what the hell happened for WrestleMania 19, that pay-per-view buy rate. I know it's a show that people really like. Um, I think the build for that show is absolutely horrific. And while the terrible number it did on pay-per-view is quite eye-opening and jarring. It also kind of doesn't surprise me. But go ahead. I can tell you want to say something right now. No, no. I was just going to agree with you. It's funny because I know this is a completely different conversation, but I think that that bears out in the number. I think that the reason why, when you look at every match on that show, WrestleMania 19, every single build, when you take it, like when you just look at each individual match build in isolation, they're all underwhelming. Apart from probably the best one is Jericho and Michaels. Yeah, and yeah, again, it's a podcast for a different time. Maybe we could someday review uh, the build to WrestleMania 19 and inform people how horrible it was. And maybe you shouldn't just review and look at wrestling in a vacuum that night, how the in-ring work was. There's more to that. But um, yeah, I, I think uh, that two-year decline, WrestleMania 17 to 19, that is the biggest two-year decline in the history of pay-per-view buys for Mania, because Mania 17 does like a huge number, does over a million, and Mania 19 barely does half that. Yeah. Like, I mean, it, it is a colossal drop those two years. But the next biggest drop is Mania 5 to 7, to bring it back to what we're talking about here. It is a massive drop. Mania 7 only does like 400,000 uh, on pay-per-view. And again, Mania 5 had done almost double that just two yes. years earlier. So this is where you see the problem. And I know WWE wants to cite security reasons as why WrestleMania seven had to be moved. But the reality you pointed out earlier was slow ticket sales. Very, very slow ticket sales. Because <laughs> one of the things that made it legit, well, I'm sure it was a nightmare for those who had to handle it, but, and I know Meltzer notes this, the logistics of moving buildings. One of the things that kind of made it easier is they made the decision when they look at how many tickets were sold. They're like, okay, we can move all these people into the sports arena. So it was only like 15,000 tickets had been sold when that decision was made to switch venues. Correct. Yes. They made the decision between January 23rd and January 25th to switch buildings. Okay. You talk about rumble 91 doing well on pay-per-view. I mean, what is, I mean, I think, do you have the information, what Meltzer talks about, the buy rate and stuff? I mean, it was a big jump. Yeah, so just to contrast, like we mentioned, Rumble Mania, Slaughter wins the title at the Royal Rumble, 
and it appears to have done better than a 3.0 buy rate, by far the highest of any previous Royal Rumble show. Obviously, all of the outrage that comes about, and it seems like the Slaughter title win is actually what sparks it. The fact that Slaughter wins the belt, it's right after that when all of the all the publicity comes out, the bad publicity, that, that they're exploiting the war. Because obviously the, the war had actually started about, what, four days before? Yeah, right, it's that week. The yeah. week of Royal Rumble 91, the war does start, the Persian Gulf War starts. Yeah, so, so, so gunfire begins that week. Slaughter wins. Everyone knows what's coming. Slaughter is going to be wrapped up in the, in the Iraqi flag. Hogan going to the troops, all of that. It gets such a negative response. By the time we get to WrestleMania, there it was, over a 3.0 for the Royal Rumble. The WWF, not only did they do worse, but they were so self-conscious about going in this direction that on WrestleMania 7, Gorilla Monsoon, I believe, says that it's the greatest uh, pay-per-view audience of all time, the biggest pay-per-view audience of all time for a pro wrestling show, uh, which obviously <laughs> kind of hard to tell while the show's still going on. But that, that was... Yeah. <laughs> Who does Gorilla know in the pay-per-view industry that he's getting those numbers halfway through the show? My God, I mean, how well-connected is he? Well, apparently not well enough because it turns yeah. out... It yeah. turns out... They are not, in fact, uh, witness to the greatest audience in yeah. pay-per-view history. They report originally that the buy rate is a 4.0, which was slightly above Mania 6, which was a curious number for them to choose. However, several sources in the pay-per-view industry said that's absolutely not true. It's a 2.8. As time goes on, and you can track this in the observers, the 2.8, which Meltzer says sounds unbelievably low, considering last year did a 3.8 and was considered as a, somewhere between a major disappointment and a complete flop, but previous WrestleManias before that had never done below a 6. And as time goes on, WrestleMania 7 does indeed track to a 2.8 lower than the Rumble. So there is your ultimate irony, I suppose. The Warrior did draw better against Slaughter than Hulk Hogan. Yeah, and because the pay-per-view universe is still expanding, I personally like to look at total number of buys necessarily. Agreed. Instead of, instead of buy rate. So I just want to go over these numbers. So... It was 440,000 people bought the 91 Rumble. Uh, for frame of reference, 1990 to 260,000. So that is a massive jump. In 92, it was back down to 260,000 again. So again, 90 and 92 were almost identical. Uh, 91, a massive spike. With WrestleMania, we mentioned the 400,000 buys earlier for WrestleMania 7. Uh, you know, that was down a little bit from 1990. And then the WrestleMania 5 did 767,000. The 400,000 buys for WrestleMania 7, that was less than WrestleMania 4 had done, despite WrestleMania 4 taking place in a much smaller pay-per-view universe where, where, where uh, significantly fewer homes had the capability to order pay-per-view. The lesson of all of this, why are we reading these numbers? At least for me, this, this is the lesson I took away, Liam. Sergeant Slaughter winning the title at the Royal Rumble was a bad, capital B, capital A, capital D idea. Oh my god, the worst, the worst. So, Warrior should have beaten Slaughter at that show, right? Without a doubt. Okay, let's talk about WrestleMania 7, because that's what people like to know. They like to hear fantasy booking. I got some, uh, you know, some friendly notes on people who really liked what we had to say about SummerSlam 90. So let's just do a little bit of the same in shorter form for WrestleMania 7. If you don't do Sergeant Slaughter as the world champion and Warrior stays champion, what do we do instead? 
is turning the warrior heel and doing the rematch with Hogan your best and or only option? Uh, it's hard because I've always kind of had the opinion that the warrior needed it's it's kind of inconceivable that Hogan wouldn't have been the main event up to this point. He, he yes. n- 9 is the first one where he isn't. So and and Hogan was a big difference maker on pay-per-view and he always was. So even though part of me would love to say you just do Warrior Savage, I don't think that does noticeably better than what ends up happening anyway. But you do you do avoid all the bad press. So there's that as a, as a plus I suppose. But yeah. Other than that, it's it's the heel turn. Okay. Yeah, and that's maybe a podcast we could do again as, as we look at a 91. We can really dig deep into the negative press slaughter brought about because folks really need to understand, you know, Dave spends the first two, three months of The Observer just every week talking about what a disaster uh, that angle was uh, from a publicity standpoint and how much bad press they get. Bob Costas pulls out. Um, you know, their relationship with NBC falls apart, uh, so on and so forth. Could they have done a double main event scenario at WrestleMania 7 similar to SummerSlam 90, where Warrior's the champ and Hogan works someone else in a program that's not for the title? Because here's the thing. If Warrior beats Slaughter, he's done a good number on pay-per-view. All of a maybe you don't have to take the title off the Ultimate Warrior and you can go back, double down, and try to make this guy the future of the company. I, I would have tried. I would have tried. I, to be honest, I think that if, again, living this the way we are with this, with this rewatch and looking through the details and, be, and, and looking at numbers, hard numbers from the time, if it's me and I see that number with Slaughter, I'm kind of inclined. I mean, and granted, it's too late by then because he's lost the belt. But yeah. I'm, I'm inclined to try and see how far you can take it. Again, they haven't done that really at any point. All through 1990, one of the big things, at no point do they feel like they're all in with, with, with putting everything on the Warrior. Really, the time when there is most focus on Warrior is probably post-Survivor Series, when the Savage Angle starts to take and the Slaughter Angle is being heated up for the Warrior, which is something that, you know, Rude Rude was not the hottest heel in the company. Earthquake was, because he was going to Hogan. There was no hotter heel, and really, I'm reticent to use that term, because Slaughter wasn't really massively hot, but there was no heel that was getting more promotional focus, let's put it that way, than Sergeant Slaughter during that period of time, and that focus was going for the Warrior. And when it came time to... There was never really a chance, it felt like, for the Warrior to actually be in the position where the heel he works with is the one getting all the focus, and then when you pay it off, you see what it does. Why did yeah, he get that? Yeah, the sad irony of Warriors Tunnel Run, it, it seems like he was way hotter at the very end than what he was, like, right in the middle, in the exactly. summer of 90. Like, he was way hotter going into 91 Rumble than he was uh, for SummerSlam 90. Okay. If you do that double main event scenario where Warrior's still the champion and Hogan is working uh, in a different match... Who are the opponents? Oof, it's slim. Because Quake's Sam- done. Quake's done. Yes, um, done. Taker's not ready, I don't think. Well, but do you have to? As Dave alluded to, you know, he there was some talk. Oh, he'll be in a top heel position spot. Do you have to heat him up? And do you do Hogan Taker as a WrestleMania 7 match? Ah. <sighs> 
you know, I would, I, I, <laughs> you know, I kind of think that by doing that, that does keep Taker in line with pretty much every other heel from that period of time where they kind of, you know, they bring him in, you know, late, they get him ready for the big blow off, but it just seems like that's going to cut him. It's going to cut him short before he even gets to his peak. And and I guess maybe the whole idea is that you need to heat him up quicker so he gets to that point that he, he gets to anyway quicker than he does. But man, I just feel like that's not... I don't think that's going to be a hit. Okay, okay. And would Warrior work savage in a title match then? I guess so. Okay. Could Flair Hogan have filled the LA Coliseum or was it inevitable that the WWE would have had to change venues? I think it's inevitable they're changing. <laughs> I agree. I, just looking at the trajectory from like 1989, from that point forward, where we're talking about the, the slow decline in attendance, I don't see the company being hot enough to get at that point with the, with, with the way attendance was. You know, this, this is not it's not like now where you got the fly-ins and stuff like that. This is a different time, and I don't see them getting a hundred thousand. Yeah, it's not 1986, 1987 anymore. They yeah. could they have pulled this off. Obviously, I mean, look, I know there's all this conjecture about how many people were in the Pontiac Silverdome, but that was the time period where they could have tried to pull this off. Or even, you know, they could have announced a worked number. Yeah. Knowing them, they, they would have. They, and it would have, and they could have fooled people into doing it. But 1991, no way. I don't think there's any match that they could have filled the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum with. Okay. If you turn Warrior Heel and have him face Hogan. And Hogan presumably wins the title back, avenging the loss the year before. I have two questions. One, what do you do with Randy Savage then at WrestleMania 7? Because you don't, well, at least I personally, don't want to lose that Elizabeth angle. Yeah, he's going to have a hard time. So uh, I see you have an idea here. And I don't think there's an idea that I can come up with that's better than that one. I don't know if it makes sense, and I don't know if it's fair, but he was signed at this point. The, the, the ink had been put to paper. What if it was Ricky Steamboat? I'd have been so awesome if he came back specifically for Savage. Yes, and again, this would have been a complete departure from what they did because instead of running away from Ricky Steamboat's history with the promotion, they would have been embracing it. <laughs> yes. And, you know, imagine if, going back to our earlier point about maybe Brett wins the Intercontinental title at this show, Imagine if you get Savage Steamboat and Brett Perfect on an undercard of Hogan Warrior 2. Oh, man. And imagine you had not hyped the LA Coliseum for a year, setting yourself up to failure. What's the narrative on WrestleMania 7? A lot different, I got to assume. Oh, that, that wets my mouth now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only thing is, okay, with Steamboat, it's not going to be there was such a great grudge and a reason to do that career-ending match with Savage costing the Warrior the title. Like, it made sense, right? Like, mm -hmm. okay, there's such heat on Savage. We're going to do this career-ending match. The promotion's only big enough for one of them. It's too out of control. Doing that same step with Steamboat, that would have taken um, an amount of creativity we probably don't have time for on this podcast. So, I don't know. It's just an idea I had. And here's the other issue if you turn Warrior heel. He presumably loses Yeah. at WrestleMania. I'm not sure what becomes of him. But here's another problem. 
who's your number two babyface post WrestleMania seven? Because we know that's Warrior in that position as it things go, feuds with Undertaker. If you've turned Warrior and fed him to Hogan, who's the number two babyface of the promotion? Because Randy Savage is taking time off. Yeah. So there's a big void there. I I think that and hey, if if, if we go with your scenario, I guess the answer is probably Steamboat, right? Yes, under that under that fantasy booking scenario, I guess you you could have Ricky Steamboat coming back to the promotion and again. You know the Hogan Steamboat combo coming out of WrestleMania three four years earlier certainly looks strong. The other name bandied about and a name I just mentioned, Bret Hart. Yeah. What if? And we know they had. Big plans for Brett. You know, Brett always talks about this fan mail he received, how it only rivaled that of Hulk Hogan. You know, <laughs> even even going back to the 80s. If that was even remotely true, why not put Brett in that position? And again, Brett, with the issue with steroids that was coming up, okay, Brett was not that freakishly big guy. And all of a sudden, before shit hits the fan with Zahorian, You've got this guy in a number two babyface position who you can keep. I like the idea of him there because it seems like, I mean, and granted, this is a discussion that doesn't end up having to be had because they didn't turn the warrior heel, which is key to all this. But since they have their A and B show tours after this, with Warrior, out, if, if Warrior is out of the mix, and he kind of was anyway before long, I mean, he's gone soon. Yes, yeah, so, so, some like one, and he's done for it for a while. But it feels like that's a gap that's, they've been trying to plug all year in 1990. That, that, that even if Warrior stays babyface, that number three guy they tried it with you, know, Duggan, Piper, Dusty, Bossman, and none of them have stuck. So why wouldn't you give it a shot? Yeah, I I think uh, Brett is kind of the correct call for that position. But as we know, Jim Hydard stays. The Hart Foundation's run. You know, it goes a little long in the tooth as far as I'm concerned because, man, they don't do anything. Like, <laughs> Survivor to Series to WrestleMania? I mean, it's just sort of like almost just waiting for someone to come along and beat the team. So that, that's another reason Power and Glory should win the title, by the way. But whatever. yeah, <laughs> beaten, we've beaten that into the ground. All right. Just one last thing I'd add about the idea of Brett before we move on from it is that Brett, at the end of 1990, on those pay-per-views, I... You, do get a very real sense that the crowd is starting to fall in love with Brett a little bit because they that Philadelphia crowd goes absolutely fucking ballistic. That Heart Foundation demolition match, silliness aside about you know the identity of the guys, the crowd are going absolutely nuts in that match. There is a near fall in the first fall for a Russian leg sweep from Bret Hart in that match. That, that's how incredible Bret Hart is in that match and it's survivor series they did the deal with him in dibiase at the end where he comes so close to yes and the crowd wants him so badly to win it feels like there's momentum there with brett i'm glad you brought that up because as far as the narrative that they were thinking about turning brett uh into a single in the fall of 1990 it sure kind of felt that way when you watch that survivor series match because he's in there significantly longer than neidhart and yeah He's the one he's facing a two-on-one disadvantage, I think, against DiBiase and Valentine. Yeah, I think that's if I remember. Three-on-one three with Taker, and Taker gets run off, and then he just yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Taker get yeah, Taker gets counted out or whatever, disqualified, and then Brett pins Valentine, and it comes down to him and DiBiase, and they have kind of like a a real fun uh, little stretch there to close that match with DiBiase going over. 
Uh, but yeah, it, it felt like that was, eh, again, they'd been thinking about it for like three years or two years, toe in the water, and they pull back with Brett's singles push. But we eventually, of course, get it after WrestleMania, and he does win the IC title. But starting a few months earlier could have had its advantages long term. So, our final thoughts on 1990. These are mine. You offered a thesis at the start of this three-episode uh, three run. You were so kind to invite me on to talk about this year. I cannot thank you enough. I cannot tell you how much fun I had doing this. Uh, it was a great way to spend my uh, time during this horrible pandemic that we're all living <laughs> through. So, uh, you know, I, I would have enjoyed it at any time, but this really was awesome. Liam, I can't thank you enough. Our first po- series of podcasts together. Hopefully not our last. Uh, maybe I might bug you after we go off the air, but uh, no, I just wanted to offer... Me, man. Okay, I just wanted to offer my final thoughts on the year. Please do. Hey. A, the Warriors title run could have been booked better, particularly in that summer part, but I do think going back to Hulk Hogan was inevitable. Even with that Rumble 91 buy rate, it was clear, particularly when he watches promos, Warrior had his limitations and was never going to have that connection with the fans, or at least that same connection that Hulk Hogan did. And to be fair, 98% of wrestlers in the history of this industry have not had the same emotional connection Hulk Hogan was able to pull off. So uh, he shouldn't be, you know, ripped to shreds for that necessarily. But I I do think going back to Hogan at some point was inevitable. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think as we've gone through, it, it, it was more striking in the first six months of 1990 than the last six months for sure. But it definitely feels like even if they had given the Warriors run it's the the absolute best effort they could have done. The looming shadow of Hogan is always going to be there, and there is always going to be the natural comparison, and that's hard to break when you're following the guy, who at that point was the guy, and, and there was very little to compare him to, and he's still there, he's standing next to you, you know, as, as you're trying to, to, to forge a path for the, for the next, presumably, three to four years for the Federation. It feels like, no matter what Warrior does he's going to end up historically a second banana to Hogan. Yeah, I think perfect world for WWF. Warrior retains at Rumble 91. They do some sort of double main event at WrestleMania 7 like we talked about. Warrior's title run continues. You see how much life it has. Maybe he does heat up and become the guy you wanted him to be. And then down the road at some point, you do have him turn heel and you do, and Hogan gets his win back. You know, the steroid thing doesn't happen. Obviously, that's the perfect world. Again, perfect world for WWF. (laughs) You know, Hogan doesn't have to go on his hiatus in 92. And, you know, who knows who the eventual um, follow uh, to Hogan is at that point. But uh, we'll never know because it was not a perfect world for the WWF over the next couple of years. Okay. My second conclusion for 1990. We can rebook Warrior all we want. We can try to eliminate the negative press that Slaughter brought on. I alluded to this earlier, though. Bottom line, the steroid issue was just as inevitable as going back to Hogan as champion. And that steroid issue, ultimately, there's that word again, spelled doom. And I'm not talking Ron Simmons and Butch Reed here (laughs) for the promotion. Yeah, so this is an interesting one because I agree that's coming no matter what. And you're going to have to deal with that, especially when when the Zahorian thing takes place. But... And I'll throw this one back to you. Does the media focus of the WWF as like an enemy of good taste not happen 
as strong as it does if not for the slaughter thing. Because there's a note in The Observer on, on, on February 18th of 1991 where Meltzer says, in many ways the McMahon myth has been shattered. Not the myth of Vincent Mann as a wrestling promoter or his marketing ability. His reputation in those fields are proven and beyond reproach, he says. But there is My no... But there is no Midas touch. His ability to manipulate the media is no longer. The credibility of his company, not to people within pro wrestling or hardcore fans who already knew, but to the general media and the general public who didn't know or care about wrestling, has suffered a major blow. And the reason I read that quote, Kyle, is because I've always had this kind of nagging thing in my head of, does the media go so hard on the WWF and and focus on this, or does this just kind of get swept under the rug if not for the fact that they'd already kind of made themselves a public enemy because of this. And they'd already kind of shown with the slaughter thing just how kind of uh, deep in the toilet Vincent Mann was willing to lick. Yeah. Look, the steroid issue was going to get reported on regardless. Um, And it was more serious to the promotion because of what it threatened to take away. Like, Sergeant Slaughter is just something in bad taste. You know, maybe that's minimizing it. It was in horrible taste. (laughs) But the steroid issue winds up bringing down Vince McMahon, almost bringing down Vince McMahon himself. Yes. And that's something that no poor taste angle could necessarily ever do. You know, I mean, Slaughter was maybe the first poor taste angle we had seen since the national expansion, or at least in the main event level scene like that. It's certainly in the last. And Vince has always been able to withstand a professional wrestling angle in bad taste. Cause I think the general population, when they think about pro wrestling, they expect pro wrestling sometimes to operate in bad taste. But when you've got this legal situation hanging over your head, where you could go to jail, ultimately, again, that is just a much bigger deal than doing a wrestling angle in poor taste. So I think the steroid issue, no matter how we rebooked this year of 1990, was going to take this company down. And let's not forget, there were other scandals as well. It's not that it was just steroids. There were other scandals. So again, okay, maybe they don't have slaughter and the bad press there. But there's other stuff with Pat Patterson and Terry Garvin. So, look, uh, 1990, an interesting year. Certainly, I don't think anyone views it as a good year in the history of the company creatively. But no matter what you want to do to fix it, you just can't fix the fact that Dr. George Zahorian gets arrested, uh, (laughs) I believe, on July 4th of 1991. And... WWE, uh, you know, gets brought to its knees. Indeed. And that pretty much wraps us up. I, I could not think of a better closer than to kind of leave us on the note of Dr. George Zahorian, since that is the big story that obviously comes of all of this. All of the all of the movements, the machinations, the things that take place between, obviously, steroids in wrestling, the WBF, the bad press with Slaughter. Whatever happens, it's heading towards Dr. George Zahorian on Independence Day. Uh, being sold down the river, shredding his documents in his office, apparently. So... With that said, I do want to thank Kyle so much for dedicating so much time to this series of podcasts. Kyle, this has been, like you said before, such an absolute treat to do this with you, to talk about this topic. I, I, I Again, I have my opinion of 1991. I looked at these notes. I, I, we watched the TV. 
I came away with such a deeper appreciation for the issues the company had than I really ever thought of. I do think that this bad year does go a long way towards the slump that happens. Um, but again, yes. there's, there's things outside the ring that take place too. I think that it doesn't get enough credit, and that's probably the wrong word, for the damage that it does. But there would have been uh, no better way than to examine it with you over the course of the, what, nine hours that we've talked about this. This has been an incredible series. Kyle, let the people know where they can hear you and find you. Top Rope Nation is the podcast. You can find me now bi-weekly as we will be offering two shows. Uh, One covering current events, one covering... uh, Often something historical, uh, a more of a potpourri episode. Those will be released. Uh, the current events one will always be released on Thursday where we run down the news of the week. And then the historical slash potpourri edition will be available on Monday. Uh, we just recorded an excellent uh, two episodes with Andrew Zarian. I implore people to go and listen to those right now. Uh, you can find me at TRP Kyle on Twitter. I will respond to you if you have a good question. If you have a bad question, I might just pretend I didn't see it. <laughs> and it just depends what kind of mood I'm into when I see it. Also, you know, if I'm like in a pissed off mood, I might yell at you for all I know. I don't know. <laughs> but at least you'll be honest. Yes, yes. Thank you so much, Carl, for doing this series. It's been great. To all the listeners of this show, your feedback has been very much appreciated. I know that this uh, series has gone down very well. So uh, I thank you for your feedback. I thank you for your listens. And we will be again soon. So for the great Kyle Ross, I am Liam O'Rourke, and we are out of here. Talk to you again soon. Bye.